it appears to have happened too late for it to actually have made a difference. It kind of invalidates it. So the ancient alien hypothesis tends to be one that supports your preferred beginning of civilization. Okay, guys, welcome back to the Great America Show. We're going to be chatting to Gordon White a little bit later. Um, but first, as always, Graham, sometimes I smirk like an asshole and ruin the intro Dunlop. How's it going? Hey, not bad. It's with Gordon White, not to Gordon White. I don't know where you get that English from. To. Yeah. That's weird. Somewhere back east, Ontario and east say that. Really? I kind of caught thought that like 50 episodes ago, but it's just been Grammarica Talks to you so long that right. it'd be weird to change it. We're 150 No, it's episodes. okay in that context. It's just when you said it before. It's like, where are you to? When you t- ask me where I'm to, it's not where I'm to, it's where I'm at. That's fucking different than saying we're going to be talking to Gordon White a little bit later. Saying where you to is a newfie thing. I do it as a joke to fuck with you. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you just said that it's on the intro. We're, we're going to be talking at Gordon White. No, you no. didn't say it. No? Okay. Nobody talks like that except backwards newfies. Okay. Sorry, Newfoundland. I don't know. We might not even know. <laughs> so, yeah, what a great chat. Big thanks to Greg Carlwood at the Higher Side Chats podcast for kind of setting this up. And he, uh, yeah, he kind of got us in contact with Gordon and I had listened to a couple of his episodes and I was just blown away. So yeah, Gordon and us get into like, uh, the immigration of early humans and all kinds of, uh, spiritual stuff as well. Ancient mysteries and alternative history. It's really fascinating talk. It so, is. Yeah. It was, it was pleasantly surprised. Yeah, it was great. Not to say it was wasn't expecting it to be a good chat, but it was like early in the day. Oh yeah, just right. yeah, jumped right into it right in the beginning and had a good uh, a good one. Yeah. So what else is going on there, buddy? Not too much. You? Oh, I did want to address that. A couple of people accused us of advertising squatty potties. Oh really? Like seriously? Yeah. But. Wow. We're not at Squatty Potty a brand? I thought it was the, like your nickname that you made up for it. No, I think it's a brand. It's a brand? Squatty, squatty Potty, potty really? But we get no money if you buy a Squatty Potty. <clears throat> Otherwise, we would have given you a link, but we don't have one. I we just get, enjoy the product. We get shit. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with talking about I should be allowed to tell you guys what products are like. I'm yeah. telling you, I was using the end today. It's like, I just sit down and it's like, people are going to think this is commercial. <laughs> <laughs> I just sit down, it's like, the gas just comes out right away. And then, yeah, but I find it, I used your squatty potty once, and I found it weird that you have to hike your, like my legs you felt to, like they're really yeah, high get up, yeah, awkward weird. position, it's, like I was rocking takes, back and forth, like I don't know. It takes like a week, week and a half. To get used to it, really? Now I'm used to it, now and I'm good, works. I pop right in there, yeah, I go in first, I'll stand, I'll drop my pants right to my ankles. And then crawl because that's the, the mounting is the hard part in a way. No, I'm already sta- I've already put the stool in position, and I'm standing on is it. Is it supposed to go out a little ways? Maybe yeah, I had it too yeah, close. Oh, yeah, you got to slide it right out. You slide oh, it right that's out. what that's what the problem. That's is. just for easy storage. You slide it out. You stand on it. So you stand on it. You drop your pants to your ankles, fully unzipped, and down you go. And I found the trick is to yeah, sit. but don't you find that it's you're far up and then you might fall back on the toilet? Like, how no. do you hold yourself to? 
You get used bring to yourself it. down. I can even play with my phone. Now. I think they need handlebars for the squatty body. Like no, to you just need to be down. better at life. <laughs> you just want. That's like they should just have fucking the shit you bounce off when you walk down the sidewalk, <laughs> so you don't even have to look. <laughs> That's like fucking bowling with the things in the gutters. You know those things yeah, they fill yeah. them up with water or whatever. You can't throw a gutter ball. That's not water. That's the kind of world you want to live in. A world of no gutter balls. That's socialism. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not get political. That's not. I'm pro Bernie. You want to get skeptical? Uh, I don't have a jingle for that. No, I, I got an email though. Darren and Graham going deep. What's that? Oh, you. It's a profound UFO quote of a week. <laughs> okay, so I'll, I'll say the UFO quote before we get into Words Buddy's skeptical email. Is it going to be a UFO quote? Yeah. It's a profound yeah, UFO quote okay. of a week. After about two minutes and maybe a thousand meters from where we first noticed it, a gray slash white craft broke out of the water right where the white wave was sounds like a uso <laughs> and it continued to move in the same direction except this time it was flying in the air from what i could see i could not make out any conventional means of propulsion that i know of no propeller no rotors no jet exhaust and completely silent from where i was i have no explanation whatsoever i am catholic lay minister and a catechist an educator of faith i do not lie george gregory Mattingen, Catholic lay minister. That's from Tanjun Aru Beach in Kota Kanabalu in Malaysia, October 8th, 2005. 2005? Yeah, that's a recent cool. one. He's probably still around. Yeah, probably. Oh. Okay, do you want to get into this uh, email, the, the good show butt email, or do you want to talk about... Uh, Sleep paralysis. I want to talk about skeptical. Okay, you want me to read that? Oh, let's get y'all fired up for the rest of the intro. I'm not gonna get fired up, dude. Oh, I'll make sure of it. Okay, so uh, here it is. Good show, but this is from Jason. Thanks for the email, Jason. Hey guys, I recently Jason B. Yeah, another Jason B. Not the Jason B. No, the other one. I recently started listening to your show and I've been working on my way back through some episodes and a couple of red flags went up to one of your podcasts on my morning run. I'll keep this short, but no promises. I'll open with full disclosure. I'm the believer's boogeyman, an atheist and a skeptic. I'm not a staunch either. I don't attend meetings or clubs for either. I don't receive appropriate newsletters or ground email or group emails for either. In fact, I want to be a believer but so far, in the face of evidence, and I know how much you hate that word, Graham, it so far has fallen apart. That said, do you want me to address my? Said? Do you want me to address my? The problem with the evidence? word evidence. No, I love the word I'm evidence. Sick of fucking hearing your little rat. I love the word evidence because there's a shit ton of evidence out there that the scientists won't accept. That doesn't mean there's like solid proof. <laughs> But there's a shit ton of evidence. <laughs> Why do you find that so funny? Continue. So he says, 
I was listening to an episode where you and Stanton Friedman had, a, or actually, we were on with a guest who donated a laptop. That's James Nation. I apologize, don't have uh, have it on me at the moment, and I'm in too much of a hurry to look it up. You read an email from a guy claiming he was in studies related to Earth sciences, and that he was calling out the entirety of science on their claims of about anthropogenic global climate change. That's AGCC for short. Here on out. It kind of reminds me of these stories you hear about kids in college who after a few classes suddenly become experts in their field. And if gentleman who wrote it and indeed is in the earth sciences, he can't be doing very well or he's completely convinced himself he knows better than a whole many more scientists with experience. What's more, it sounded like at least one of you was an AGCC denialist. I use denialist comfortably here and I'll explain in a moment. <laughs> My question for me? you would I'm be... I'm assuming that's me. No, I think it's more me. Oh, perfect. But we're both kind of probably falling into that category, but it shouldn't be a category. I don't I'll want to explain be in any that fucking later. category. Exactly. You. Thanks, buddy. My question for you would be... be the next category, oh, over or up. Here's a good one. My question don't for you... fucking facepalm me. Pay attention. To I'm paying now. attention. I'm, you have my undivided attention. I'm staring right at my you. My question... Well, you won't shut up. My question for you would be, what about a 96 to 98% consensus among scientists in fields related to climate? So is that not 97, but it's now 96 to 98%? That's interesting. Just cover like 1% or 2% above that, that old meme of 97%, which has been debunked. Which even Micah Hanks on his podcast when he started talking about global warming. He didn't want to... Global warming? Is that a question? He didn't want to... He didn't... Well, actually, this guy doesn't mention global warming. It's climate change. But Micah didn't address the 99 cent... 99 cent... 97% meme either. Anyways, he continues on here. And 92% consensus for scientists in other fields. Do you find too much to believe? If you believe in a global conspiracy to cover up the facts or to create something that doesn't exist to scare public for whatever reason, then I can't argue that at that moment, because I don't have the time to delve into the thousands of scientists and government bodies all across countries, and several hundred years add up to an impossible impossibility to support a claim like that. I'd certainly be willing to engage in dialogue if you're interested. I always enjoy a good discussion. I'll leave that up to you. Consensus is a collection of data from experiments that is built up into such a robust collection that there appears to be something to it from a scientific point of view. Now, here's why, here's where I'm okay with using denialist in this case. While the consensus among scientists that it appears mankind is at least partially responsible for the ongoing climate changes, a large percentile of those scientists will tell you it's not 100% settled science. As you do more experience and move forward in time to collect more data and truth shifts. This is true with all science. For example, evolution is probably the closest thing to AGCC shares and percentages as far as consensus goes. But even recently, they've dug up evidence that our ancestors may have been surprising attributes we've never, we may have had surprising attributes we've never considered. It doesn't change the fundamentals of evolution. It just adds more to our understanding of it. So while scientists are okay with allowing for error, I generally find so-called denialists, like your emailer, absolutely sure it's wrong. With many of these guys, there's no room to budge as far as they're concerned. It's a big conspiracy to do whatever 
for whomever, and we're all being lied to all the time. So Make panic. Billions of dollars in carbon trade. <laughs> but hang on, I'll just. I, I, I'm willing to budge. I I say maybe we're helping it out. Helping it out is a big difference from causing it. Yeah. Well, it'll all be over soon anyway. Okay, let me <laughs> let me finish up here. Seriously, though, if I pegged you guys wrongly as denialists, wrongly, then I apologize. But the gentleman who emailed in about it definitely fits the bill and should probably retake his earth science classes or find another degree to pursue. I'm not being a jerk on purpose here. I'm serious. If you want to pursue scientists or science but can't follow the science, then it's probably not for you. Also, chemtrails? Come on, guys. I'd love to hear what the something going on behind that might be. That's pretty fringe, even for a lot of paranormal-based con- pon- podcasts I listen to. To end on a positive note, I hope you feel I was attacking you, but I'd certainly like... <laughs> I'm not sure if he's supposed to say, I hope you don't feel... But anyways, it doesn't matter either way. But I'd certainly like to hear your views on this. Of if you have it matters. I'm or the interest. I'm not interested in heated debate, but I do like to discuss. Micah Hanks turned me on to your podcast, and he can vouch for me as a more mild kind of skeptic. Thanks, and keep up the good work. I enjoyed, enjoy the show, even if I mostly disagree. <laughs> Jason. Thanks, Jason. That was a good email. Was. So do you want to address your... Do I want to what? Address. Do you want to start? Sure. First of all, (laughs) the 97%, I don't know if that, I think that's been a meme propagated by the media. And I've seen people debunking it, that the numbers from the 97%. No, I want to start at the end. Is ridiculous. Like it's 64 people claimed out of that 11,944 people survey, 64 people said it explicitly endorses and quantifies anthropogenic global warming. Now he's talking about climate change. So maybe that is the difference between global warming and climate change. But either way, the numbers have been a meme and I believe they've been debunked. That's part of it. And it's just disgusting to me how the media just keeps propagating this 97%. When actually, out of 12,000, almost 12,000 people, almost 8,000 of them had no position at all. I wanted to hear more about your chemtrails. Okay, here's the other part of this. Okay, whether it's chemtrails or not, our insurance company here is paying people to cloud seed the clouds up there above Calgary so that it doesn't hail. Yes. And that's going on all over the place. Geoengineering. Yeah. Cloud seeding, weather modification. Like China, it's been proven that they've been doing it. And they've been yeah. writing papers on geoengineering for fucking decades. So don't tell me that that doesn't have an impact on climate. And that's obviously a human impact, but that's not what they're talking about. They're talking about, I'm sure they're talking about carbon-based impact. Not people flying around spraying clouds with shit. Or cloud busting. Kate Bush wrote a song about cloud busting in the 80s. That's probably based on reality. Have you heard that? Have you seen the video for Kate Bush's song? From cloud seeding to cloud busting so quickly. Like that. Bow, bow. Oh, it's probably the same thing. It's like cloud seeding is a... Is a real. So is cloud busting. Ish. People want to deny this. That's fine. 
But there's no, shit going on. on. The Ron, can't you, can't put, you can't put denying cloud bursting in the same category as... Denying anthropogenic climate change? No. People are cloud seeding up there. I'm not talking about climate change. I'm talking about chemtrails. There's planes that are spraying shit in the air, and I'm not talking about it being like the chemtrail. Let's call it geoengineering for what it is. I'm not saying they're dumbing down the population by releasing all these fucking fluoride. metals and boron and whatever fluoride. else. Or fluoride. Whatever. All I'm saying is there's videos of planes spraying shit in the sky, and I've seen chemtrails that are, let's say, geoengineering, let's say persistent contrails that have lasted all day long. Don't tell me that it's just a contrail that's, Here, that's created here. a cloud and lasted all day long. I don't, I don't know. I don't think that's science. But I mean, you know, you hear the scientists talk about this. Kate Bush's video showed it. <laughs> <laughs> no. Hey, what's the difference between cloud seeding and cloud bursting? Cloud, cloud busting, I should say. Are you talking about like uh, Ingo Swan cloud busting? It doesn't matter. No, there's also devices that are used. What kind of devices? <laughs> <laughs> what kind of devices? <laughs> like an airplane or a laser beam? What are you doing? Why aren't you answering me? Look at that, like that. There's Kate Bush's thing right there. Can you believe it? No, it's not on the TV. It's coming up right Who's here. Who's Kate Bush? She's a great singer from uh, from the 80s. So that's like the machine I'm talking about right there. That cloud busting machine. Says it's a fucking song. <laughs> it's just part of the video. Well, where's the part of the machine? Oh, this whole fucking Wikipedia is about this fucking song, you idiot. (laughs) (laughs) I don't even know if that machine is affiliated. Is cloud busting a real thing? That's what you're typing into Google. Is that more about the song? Uh, Let's move on. Okay. You ruined the segment. You had to bring cloud bursting into it. You had him. You had him, Graham, and you blew it. I'm not done with this, man. You're done. Are you still? Another one of Reich's inventions, of course, was the Cloud Buster, the fantastical rainmaking machine that features in Kate Bush's video. We pick up the story of the shoot, speaking to Keith. But what does it do? How does it work? Like that. (laughs) So tell me what the difference between cloud seeding and cloud busting is, okay? She talked about this from a book. She was making this video based on, let's just say, it could have been based on a myth of cloud busting. Now in 2016, we're cloud seeding. What's the difference? Yeah. You're you're breaking up the cloud to to make sure it make it rain instead of hail. You're probably busting the cloud to a certain extent. No, you're not. You're weighing down the hail so it falls to earth when it's smaller. That's all you're doing. Either way, you're modifying the weather. You're making smaller. And that's happening all over the world. You're making smaller hail. 
and cloudbursting. So instead of the insurance companies hiring planes to seed the clouds, they should hire people to sit around the outskirts of the city and burst any menacing-looking clouds that come in with their minds. <laughs> well, is that what you're... Is that the suggestion? No. No, it's okay. Okay. So then how about the 31,000 scientists that are actually signing the petition disagreeing with the global warming project? I actually heard that was a myth. Did you really? Yeah. I've heard a few things that say it's real. So 9,000 of them with PhDs? Yeah, I heard. Uh, I got it right here. Climate myth, over 31,000 of uh, efficient. Yeah, that's saying that they, that the. And no evidence has ever been offered to support the first statement. Oh, I don't know. It's fucking. But that's my point. How do you know what to believe? How can I be so dogmatic either way with the fucking amount of disinformation that's out there and the amount of real stuff that we know is going on? I'm a denier. Are you? Yeah. Fucking bullshit. No, are you really? Pretty much. <laughs> hey, you know what I should say? We go back and listen to, uh, we had a few episodes there. Don Easterbrook had a, he was, he was pretty good about, about, uh, the, what is it? A, uh, a, 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 Yeah, Easterbrook was a good host. Yeah. And Randall Carlson talks about it a bit too. Oh, you know what the other thing I want to mention? Ben Davidson. Which this Ben Davidson, yeah. This is um <coughs> this is what bugs me the most about it though, actually. This here is it. This is it. This is what bugs you the most. Yep. Yeah. Is most of the um the time frame that they're using is from eighteen twenty, right? 1820 till now. When they look at the, the Greenland samples, right? Going yeah. back from the Ice Age. Look at the fucking temperature fluctuations over the last 11, 12,000 years. That's it's ridiculous. the fuck colder. So if this is true, we're colder than we were in the medieval warm period. So how can you look at this last little blip on our radar, 1820, and say that you've got it all figured out and that we're warming? Or that actually that we're causing the climate change? What about this climate change? back and forth, way colder, way warmer, back and forth over the last 12,000 years. Doesn't this put it in a perspective for you? Looks nice. What's the end? Oh, there's global warming at the end. Really? That's a shame. Makes me want to go skiing. This is what, to me, puts it into perspective. Can't we look back 20,000, 10,000 years ago, 100,000 years ago? No, they want to go back to 1820 when, you know, we were getting all industrial and blowing carbon into the air. And say that what's warming now. Mm-hmm. Maybe it is contributing. Maybe. But I don't think it's the main cause. No, absolutely not. Are we both deniers then? If we're on the fence? Yeah, I'm, I'm not really so much even on the fence. I think it's... Hogwash? I think we're... we're I think there's plenty of reasons not to pollute the shit out of the atmosphere. But I don't think changing the... Warming up the world is one of them 
I still just think it's too minute of a number. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the parts per million number and shit, yeah. you mean? Yeah. Well, I don't want to. I, hey, I recycle. The there should just be more fucking plants. I recycle and I love the environment. I'm not saying I that we should destroy anything. That like, fucking like, recycling is fucking. Takes more energy to recycle shit than it does to to throw it in the ocean or just whatever. Just make new shit. Yeah, but it's not all about that. It's about reusing the crap from before. But the amount of energy. Yeah, so they say is if it's reduced or reused, recycle is supposed to be a last resort. Well, recycling is kind of reusing. reusing. No, it's not. The I don't think they're taking the energy to pick it up, take it, crush it down, re fucking refine it. And return it into shit. Yeah, but isn't there a point when you should just stop making shit to begin with? Like, even if it's less energy to, so to make it? Like, are we just going to just replace, continue replacing everything? In yeah. Infinity? For infinitum? Yeah. At least until I retire. I got fucking bills to pay. <laughs> yeah, so you recycle a little, yeah. Decompose yourself? I put my compost in a green bin and put Do it out on the road every two Do weeks. Do you guys have a community compost? They come pick it up. Do you get like fresh? I think they uh, sell earth? it. No, you, they they uh, take it to the fucking landfill, and the landfill sells it to the fucking to the farms to the no the place that sells it, and then I buy it back in, in the spring to put for in your my garden. garden. <laughs> <laughs> now that doesn't take a lot of energy to transport that dirt all over the place. They do all the work. Though. You can just do a little homemade. Uh, I was gonna, compost. but still too busy with the kids. You know, you gotta. Yeah. Maintain it. Unless yeah. it just turns into a fucking gross gong show that yeah. I'd want to be a part of. Yeah. Any synchros? Uh no, but I got a little comment from um about our about my email from Michael in Vancouver about the nightmare the nightmare nightmare, nightmare documentary and sleep paralysis. So we got a comment on our YouTube channel here from AB4N1SG. Nice. He says sleep paralysis is an OBE. You can't move because your soul is disconnected from your body, but still sitting in the same place. You can see entities because you're viewing the world with your third eye. Next time you have sleep paralysis, ignore any entities surrounding you. They are parasites that feed of fear. Instead of focusing on them, concentrate on trying to float free of your body. I used to be scared of sleep paralysis. But now I look forward to it. Astral travel is the shit. Word up. <laughs> oh, that's a great one. Absolutely. So we got yeah. it. We got an email too from uh, from a couple uh, that donated to the show. I'm going to send them a T-shirt. They said I've been listening to you guys for about a a year now. So decided it was about time I stumped up for a donation. I love the show. You guys have a great dynamic, a great selection of guests. Even the more woo ones are often hilarious, at least. And RPJ, that's Red Pill Junkie, is a fantastic part-time team member. You need someone sensible to keep you guys on track. My wife and I even started singling, rambling, singing rambling gram whenever we come across an odd coincidence. (laughs) Gets us some odd looks when we're walking down the street, but whatever. So, uh, yeah, they're going to send him a uh, don't shoot Sasquatch to spread the grammarical word over in the UK and they subscribed uh, as well thank you for the subscription says anyways keep up the great work and I'll try to donate more in the future and I've recently put a five star rating on iTunes iTunes he actually just donated five dollars 
Thanks. What? He donated for, he donated the one donation and then he donated five dollars instead of signing up for the subscription. Oh, okay. Just so he knows. Okay. But Just thanks so a he bunch. knows. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for trying. I <laughs> uh, uh, get her. I love all the UK. We got a lot of UK listeners and they like to comment. It's probably because we get the, yeah, we're seen to be big in the UK. Yeah. Record, if you haven't listened for a year and you haven't donated. You uh, know, it could be we've had a lot of UK listeners. I mean, the UK guests as well recently. Actually, Gordon is UK, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. But he doesn't live in the UK. Oh, yeah, he does. That's how we had to do it. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So check out gramerica.ca slash support. Look at all the options there. Donate, get a shirt, get some magnets. Uh, support the show. Yeah, we don't have any ads and we don't plan on it. No sponsors or portals or nothing like that. Hey so walls. it's all listener hey supported. And we have way. expenses, right? So it's all uh, help from you guys. We really appreciate it. Yeah, a buck a show is all we ask. This is number 156. There you go. They so can square up and then sign up for five bucks a month. We'll call it even. What's uh? What else can we do? We can review the show. Yeah, and uh, and uh, oh, I was gonna say sign up for the newsletter. You can spam Graham G R A H A M at GrahamAmerica dot com. Yes, you can. You can sign people up for the newsletter, and you can tell your friends about this motherfucker. I think that's about it, eh? It's a long chat. It's like two hours. Yeah, this is a great chat with Gordon. Thanks for coming on, Gordon, and thanks to Greg for hooking us up. Yeah, absolutely. I'll put a link to Greg's podcast THC in the in the show notes. Thanks to. Jason B for getting grabbed all right fired up. Thanks for the good email. I like it. All right, guys. Enjoy the chat with Gordon White, and we'll pick you up in the outro, I guess. Today from across the pond, all the way across the pond, we have Gordon White here. He's got a new book out. It's called Starships, A Prehistory of the Spirits. And he's the he's the one behind runesoup.com, which is quite a fascinating website. It's all full of uh, podcasts and blogs about practical sorcery, entheogens, synchronicities, UFOs, alternate alternative history, all kinds of stuff we talk about here. So uh, there's lots to chat about. We'll definitely hit on your new book there um, as much as we can because it's full of great shit that we've talked about here and it's deep. I learned a ton of stuff while reading it just recently. So welcome to the show, Gordon. Thank you very much. Very happy to be here. Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, actually, I'm a bit nervous for this one for some reason. I've just been like devouring your stuff over the last little while. And it's mind-blowing, really. The book, I just devoured it and I, it's like it's like a combination of all the stuff we've been learning about recently, but you seem to go deeper than others. And I seem to 
to learn like a little bit out of almost every like section of your book. So I just want to thank you for that. Well, that's really, really encouraging to hear. I mean, you know, these things take a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, don't, I can't even imagine how you put all that shit together. Like, I mean, especially the chapter, um, I mean, we can just get into your book right now or, or what's new. I mean, it just came out, right? Yes, absolutely. Uh, it came out on Monday and the book launch in London isn't until uh, February 13th. Nice. And, and people can get it here in North America? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, from scarletimprint.com, uh, we have uh, it's published by an independent publisher who does very good and noble things like not sell on Amazon and only sell through independent bookstores and, and that kind of thing. So uh, you can go and ask at your independent bookstore or you can go to scarletimprint.com. Nice. I'll put that all in the show notes as well. So what what about the genesis of the book then? Like it seems to me like this has to be a culmination of of years worth of work unless unless you just you know you pushed it all through in the last couple of years but Well, no, it's definitely something uh something that I've been thinking on and sort of been obsessed with and and, and had as a passion for about 20 years. Uh in many ways I can blame uh, as most people can who kind of work in this field. In many ways I can blame Graham Hancock's fingerprints of the gods uh as as kind of the the beginning spot. So whilst it was my first book and and the information and the sort of scientific research in it is very contemporary the story has been followed for quite a while. Yeah, which and it's constantly changing. Like even probably since you finished that book, you're 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 probably hearing stuff. That's, well, you that's, know, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, absolutely, uh, and so you sort of watch your 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 news feeds and and to see what's coming through different press releases from yeah. different archaeological groups, and you're crossing your fingers that uh, the proverbial sort of turn of the archaeologist spade isn't going to ruin everything. But actually, uh, since the book was completed, a lot of the information has actually corroborated it, specifically to do with um, the increasing role or increasing understanding of the complexity of Ice Age culture in Ireland, Southeast Asia, everything that seems to be coming out, the genetic information and so on sort of further supports that thesis, which is quite gratifying. Yeah. So that's what fascinated me the most. It was that chapter, I think it was called Isle of the Dragons or something like that. And it was about Sunderland and and the evolution. And, the, and that's the type of stuff that I just haven't heard enough of. Like I still haven't been able to wrap my head around the difference between what you're researching, like guys like you and Graham, Graham Hancock and compared to what the the mainstream paradigm kind of thinks happened. So if you could expand on that part, that was like the one I really want to hit on. Well, sure. Uh, a, a number of things happened there. So as, as a group, uh, historians or any kind of academics are kind of idiots. Um, but on an individual basis, uh, a lot of them do quite good work. Right. And so when, when you look at something like um, Sunderland, so island Southeast Asia before the end of the Ice Age, you have to talk to geological information, so you have to talk to geologists who have kind of said, well, there was a, a continent twice the size of India here, or a landmass twice the size of India here. And then you talk to geneticists, and they say, well, actually, uh, in terms of the kind of human migration out of Africa, we pretty much jogged along the beach and and, and got there and stayed there for 20,000 years. And then you talk to the linguists, and you start to see that um, cultural complexity outside of Africa sort of first emerged there between fifty and 30,000 years ago. So the skills of the individual kind of academics involved are quite good, but academia is kind of a, a path of specialization. Yeah, yeah. But what you actually need is that kind of intertextual 
way of, uh, of of kind of pulling them all together. So they've kind of accidentally, like the blind men and the elephant, yeah, sort, yeah. Of, sort of found uh, the the best case. I'm not an atlantologist, but they've they've sort of found the best case location for it without even really trying because if you were to get them individually in a room and say congratulations you found atlantis they would slap you that's probably one of our biggest weaknesses i'd say nowadays a specialization like that's the problem is if the power went out tomorrow like fucking nobody can make anything no exactly uh the good news is that uh that sort of intertextuality uh, is a skill, and it's one that anyone can learn. Like you don't actually have to become a biologist and then a linguist and then and then so on through. Right, right. That that kind of analogical thinking is available to anyone. It's a skill you can learn, and I think we should. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> so let's I, let's just get deeper into Sunderland a bit because I don't know for some reason I was trying to figure this out with other guests, like just to sort it out in my head. But I didn't realize that Sunderland was the the landmass that's in where where would you say Eastern Asia that was that was um, now flooded out since the end of the Ice Age? So that was like where we think that a lot of the let's say even more advanced civilization than we thought was there before the Ice Age. Yeah, I don't I don't like the word civilization too much, and there's, there's quite a bit of unpacking of of the, the dangers of that term in the book. Right. I like I like cultural complexity. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, because one of the kind of main through lines of the of starships is what we consider advanced or what we consider civilized. And we all kind of know this. We all sort of pay lip service to the idea that having an iPhone doesn't make us civilized. Right. And it's true. But if you try to look for cultural complexity, one, it's a more difficult thing to find because you're talking about um, songs and, and, and worldviews and mythology and, and, and sort of attitude to life, which don't necessarily show up quite so easily on the archaeological record. Uh, but it also allows you to, I think, look with humility at our ancestors without expecting to find, you know, spaceships and, um, and big sort of crystal generators and, and all that kind of stuff. Right. Hmm. So in the case of Sunlight, <coughs> uh, it's one of the places on Earth that lost the most landmass. In fact, it lost the most at the end of the Ice Age. And it's kind of that sort of Borneo along to Indonesia, right. uh, Indonesia piece. So uh, big chunks of that area, the mountain ranges of of a piece of land that went underwater and um, pre- presumably quite quickly, or if not in stages, but in quite violent stages because it's associated with... Um, Earthquakes and super waves and all that kind of stuff as you as you end up moving large chunks of ice and and other pieces around our kind of squishy earth yeah it's funny that's just kind of the same same kind of things we talked about with Randall Carlson and and guys like that about um, how sudden they feel the ice age came a, came across sort yeah, of ended I, so to speak yeah and it's not um it's not necessarily a contentious idea anymore. If you look at the history of geology, it kind of went in and out. So we obviously had a kind of biblical view of the world before we developed in the Enlightenment and the Victorian era these kind of scientific schools like geology and biology and so on. And one of the reasons there's been in the sort of mid-20th century to late-20th century, there is resistance to the idea that the Earth can change quite rapidly is that it sounded suspiciously like 
the ghost of that biblical way of seeing the world. The world was built in right, six days, right. the flood and so on. So funnily enough, the geologists of the 19th century just kind of drew a line in the sand and said, nope, geology is slow. Everything happens really, really slow. If you say otherwise, you're some kind of Bible-thumping weirdo. And in many, in many respects, that was a kind of good temporary move because it did sort of wash out some of the um, maybe non-scientific ways of viewing history. Uh, but as but it, I think the trouble with scientists is that they don't necessarily study the history of science. So they think that's true rather than the, a position from which they argued for a while that maybe isn't so useful anymore. Hmm. So... So then the idea is that that uh, the migration out of Africa happened not so much like you said on the beaches, but through through Eastern Asia, what, what used to be uh, landmass and now is just just water. Well, yeah, the the sort of out of Africa journey is odd. Um, it's very well corroborated and it doesn't I know a lot of uh, alternate historians maybe have a, a problem with the idea, but it doesn't necessarily say anything about the origins of mankind or whether previous kind of colonizing groups had left Africa prior to the sort of 70,000-ish um, BC time period in which we did leave uh, in this particular thing. Because what can happen is like people could have left 150,000 years ago yeah. from Africa or wherever and they all died out. Yeah. And as a result, they don't show up in our genes. Like it is genuinely as simple as that. But by the same token, the information funnily enough, becomes more valuable because as long as you don't use it to try to say something it's not saying, which is this is the story of mankind, it's not. It's saying this is the story of the kind of most recent and currently successful colonizing project out of Africa. Now, what happened at the sort of 70,000 mark is they, they sort of, um, from Northeast Africa, they went across uh, more or less into India and turned right and um, jogged along the beach because they were only it only took them a few thousand years to get from Africa to island Southeast Asia. There are no other genetic routes that have been so far found, and it's quite well corroborated science that sort of goes out through the Middle East and Eurasia and and from there. Like they 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 hugged the, the coastline and went to island Southeast Asia. Not all as a group. So what you'll find is that you will have um, kind of like genetic not backcrossings, but uh, genes showing up from island Southeast Asia back into India because people would have sort of stuck around. But nevertheless, we kind of left Africa, turned right, walked along the beach until we got to what is now Indonesia and then stayed there and then stayed there for tens of thousands of years, uh, which is odd. Um, but it's actually quite a good... It's quite a good landscape at the time because there's, there's from a climatic perspective, there isn't that many super predators. There's no tigers. Uh, there weren't crocodiles at the time. That happened towards the end of the Ice Age when it all became marshy. There were lots of rivers. Uh, so you had fresh water. You had mountains. You had reasonably good soil. You had access to the ocean. And not that many things were trying to eat you. So it's a very good place for humans to be. Uh, and, and we seem to have enjoyed it because we stayed there for a while. <laughs> and based on the linguistic evidence, uh, we developed the first kind of big leg up in cultural complexity there um, since leaving Africa. Uh, 
So you kind of put these pieces together. And as I was writing the book, a lot of the information about Gunung Padang came out, or some of the initial information came out. Right. And that, even if that hadn't happened, that was sort of entirely predicted in the model anyway, because you have people there for enough time and the sort of genetic and linguistic information to suggest an increase in, in cultural complexity. So if anything, it would be more surprising if we hadn't found something like Gunung Padang. So what, what I can't wrap my head around, Darren has, has ridiculed me for asking this question in previous podcasts, so let's see if he does it again, but it's, it's how the races evolved then. Like how did, how did if, if we were only coming out of there 70,000 years ago, it doesn't seem like there's enough time for all the different races to evolve on earth. Like really that's not, like to me it doesn't seem like it's that long ago. Like even if you talk about, you know, 10,000 years ago, that's only like a hundred grammas, you know, like a hundred of our lifetimes. If there were, if we we're a hundred years old, no, it's it's not a dumb question. It's a very good question. Uh, this is the sort of information that the out of Africa model can't help you with. Uh, the way the way it works is that you take thousands of blood samples across the world. Uh, and essentially look for the same uh, in, uh, like mitochondrial DNA uh -huh. sequences and then grandmother them back up. Uh, and you sort of assign a kind of a, a fixed number of years for a generation for it, and then you sort of family tree it back up. Now, that does two things. That actually under-reports the age because mitochondrial DNA mutates quite rapidly. So when we say we left at 70,000, it's between 70 and 90. Like there's right. a 20,000-year gap here. Uh, it tells us nothing about how humans were built. It tells us nothing about how races evolved. Uh, and the question you're asking is a good one, but it's a question to ask evolutionary theory. Like under, underneath what you're saying is, is the assumption that the kind of Darwinian evolutionary model that we kind of have jammed down our throats to do with uh, gradual uh, mutations as a result of the local environment is correct. And if you talk to uh, you know, morphological scientists, uh, they'll challenge a lot of that. And we mm -hmm. actually see in the lab that you can kind of um, increase mutations in, you know, a very short number of uh, of generations for things like fruit flies and, and so on. So, like, your question is an open question, and it's a very good one that I certainly can't That's answer. racist. <laughs> Quite racist. I was getting to that. Yeah. Yeah. Except for the Jews. <laughs> So well, what's yeah, your what's your thought about it? Uh, I actually don't know. Like that's one that I would throw back at uh, evolutionary science and go, your explanation for this is moronic, uh, because there are morphological differences that can't happen as quickly as as you think they do. Um, it doesn't change the kind of story of mankind out of Africa because if you're alive outside of Africa today you can trace yourself back to this colonizing sort of expedition of only a few thousand people, maybe even a few hundred. Wow. Uh, so that that science is is quite well corroborated. As to how Chinese people ended up looking Chinese, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I can't help you. Like, that, that is actually one of those things that you, the scientists hope you don't ask and they'll <laughs> accuse you of racism <laughs> because, like, they actually don't know. They're like, yeah, I have no idea. And funnily enough, I was reading in the Scientific American yesterday that science is, science is now gone. Oh, race is, race is a construct. Uh, it doesn't really exist. I think it's a choice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, when, when they start saying things like this, it's because they don't have, the, they don't have answers that don't break their model. Uh, 
Right. And so, so instead of looking for it, they're going to say it doesn't exist. Uh, Chinese people don't look Chinese. And you go, but they do. <laughs> you know. <laughs> wow. I wonder if it's just because there were so few. Like maybe, you know, the first people that set out, there was, maybe there was always people of kind of every race. But it was only like one family fucking made it to China and one family made it to, you know. How does that, I don't know. Oh, so, so like, that means all the, all the white people are inbred from one family and all the Chinese people are from one family and all the, you know, you get it? No, because when, when did they become, when did they first migration. Those, right? So in the first migration, there was a There's family of Indians, there was a family so of this, Chinese people, migration. a family of white people, yeah. a family of Mexican people. <laughs> they all split up and only one, fa- and then yeah, they were yeah, the only ones like who made it. like a children's book to me or something. Well, or a Benetton ad. We all go back to a <laughs> yeah. Benetton ad. It almost seems like it could be the Bible too. It seems like a book would be a good Bible story. Yeah. Huh. So the, there is some stuff in your book that you talked about. Um, just for people that that aren't aware of, of the evidence that is from around thirty thousand years ago, like you were talking about. Um, I guess in Sunderland there there was the cultural complexity, um, and there is evidence of that. So we weren't just a bunch of you know barbarians or or whatever back then. No, absolutely. And that that idea is a very mid-20th century idea. Uh, we kind of were given stages of civilization from savagery to barbarism to civilization by a guy called V. Gordon Child. Uh, and the way he kind of built these categories for all of mankind was savages were hunter-gatherer societies, um, barbarians were slightly more complicated than that, but didn't have writing. And once you had writing, you sort of got to be considered a civilization. So there's an unbelievably Eurocentric uh, view of how culture works there, because that makes things like the Incas barbarians, because they had that sort of knotted cord um, counting and, and alphabet system. Uh, but that makes them barbarians. So even though that idea is is wildly out of date, uh, it kind of exists as a deep structure in how history thinks about itself. So the idea has been deeply unpopular since the 70s. And we sort of say, oh, no, 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 hunter-gatherers, uh, you know, just the same as as other cultures and or wherever it happens to be. And kind of, like, we know that. We know that on a non-racist biological level that, that humans are the same in that um, capacity sense. But we still kind of don't credit them with the corresponding cultural complexity. So we say, oh, no, no, they're they're the same. And they go, really? Then why aren't we taking these stories of um, floods and and previous cultures and all that seriously like we do for, say, the French? And that's the bit that they can't answer because if they, they they've kind of boxed themselves into a corner as a as a discourse because they've agreed that uh, and actually in the book you'll see um, numerous examples from Australian Aboriginal traditions of floods like specifically the end of the Ice Age and when Tasmania was cut off from mainland Australia were retained in the myths of the local tribes mm. uh, and were recorded by sort of missionaries and and part of the colonial expedition at a time when we didn't know there was an ice age at a time before geology. So the stories come through out of sequence and, and they've been vindicated. So it proves that hunter-gatherer mythologies can retain accurate historical information. So we have that and we also have the consensus that, you know, people are the same so that they have the same way of thinking about the world. We just haven't taken it that next step. 
and said, okay, well then let's let's start investigating these stories, not not in a literal sense, but let's take them seriously and, and, and see how they match the world and how they match how we see the world. And because the reality is, even though we only left Africa 70-ish thousand years ago, the human brain has been, actually it's gotten smaller, but it's been more or less the same size for a quarter of a million years, mm-hmm. which means 200,000 years ago, we were having the same existential questions when we looked up at the sky uh, as we do now. So these cultures would have had whatever the Ice Age version of America is talking about these issues. Probably America. I would say more so because they were yeah. less distracted with bullshit. <laughs> well, absolutely. And also, when it comes to the stars, I mean, the book is called Starships for a very specific reason. In the Ice Age, the clue is in the name. Most of the water on Earth, or, or a significant amount more than today, was locked up in the ice. There's no light pollution. Uh, there's less cloud cover. There's no actual pollution, which means if you were sitting out in the central Australian desert 15,000 years ago, like the light must have been blinding. Like Talk about the only game in town. As you're sitting out there at night around the fire and just looking up at, at, at that sort of dome of stars. Uh, I mean, it, it happens now when you go out into the desert and you think, well, multiply this by five yeah. and you start to get... And, and we looked at... That was the only thing on TV for 200,000 years. Yeah. So the... the sort of, we've mushrooms. Un- yeah, exactly. You put, them, you put those two together and, you know, suddenly you've got TV on demand. Uh, <laughs> but that's actually the kind of point of the book, which is we've underestimated how much... Our, uh, our mythology and, and the kind of underlying stories of what is the Western esoteric tradition go back to these times and go back to these tales that are intimately associated with the stars. And there are two reasons why I wanted to write it. The first is to kind of surface that uh, into kind of popular consciousness. And the second is as a necessary corrective to every time we hear the stars mentioned in a myth, there's a sizable chunk of people who will just point and go, aliens. And uh, that's a necessarily unsophisticated response. Right. Interesting. Yeah, we had David Matheson on a couple times. He's written about the myths and the stars, and it's pretty fascinating work. Um, what did, uh, What about UPAs, like out-of-place artifacts? We've, we haven't really talked about them a lot on the show, but they keep coming up, and it's something we want to address. I know you, you brushed upon them uh, in your book. Um, and yeah. Did, did, you find, did you find those, uh, that there's some really interesting things that are there for science to actually acknowledge one of these days that show that we're even, you know, going back millions of years? Well, sure. So there's kind of, we need to separate that into two layers uh, because I'm I'm very interested in Uparts and uh, some of Michael Cremer's stuff for sure. However, what we need to do is kind of build the baseline of things that we can actually know, which is that kind of linguistic and genetic information that's reasonably well corroborated. So we have the kind of broad story of a human migration out of Africa that we're technically still part of now. So that that's kind of the information you need as a baseline, because if you don't have that, when you start to find things that like, and they're very good examples, like, you know, um, pieces of metal that are kind of, um, embedded in million-year-old rock. And, and these are all quite interesting things that need to be looked at. The story of this book is the story of this current colonizing uh, expedition. A, a, a sizable chunk of the Uaparts, uh, like the, the sort of less interesting ones, if you will, like the 250,000-year-old um, fire pits that you might find in Britain, which were found uh, last year or the year before, 
that's a fairly good example that we were not, or well, a fairly good indication that we were not the only game in town. So that could have been another hominin species that we haven't noticed, or it could have been a previous expedition, uh, like a previous colonial effort that is now gone. Uh, when you get to the kind of weirder stuff, when it, like the sort of million plus years, uh, it doesn't necessarily, it, it speaks to the kind of like how odd our universe is mm-hmm. on a macro level rather than the specific journey that this particular colonizing group is on. So there, are, uh, like, there's nothing in, in the model described in the book that precludes things like time travel. And I actually think a lot of some of Michael Cremo's more interesting stuff may well turn out to be time travel and will kind of accidentally work that out when it gets to 2300 and we lose an expedition going back one, two million years. Uh, that, I mean, that's entirely predicted. It's not the story in, in Starships because that's a very specific story of the origins of um, the mythology that underpins sort of Western magic. But there's nothing to say that they aren't there. I think some of them are some of them are inevitably with these kind of stories, misinterpretations, things that he thinks are footprints are probably like trilobite and other um organism sort of marks in the mud. Mm-hmm. But there are other ones that are very difficult to kind of explain away, like metal embedded in in million year old rock. Uh, and they they definitely invite an explanation or interpretation, but it's uh it's something that could happen in the universe described in the book rather than uh, a piece of information that goes into the thesis. Well, even those fire pits, fire pits in, in the UK, did what, what was the uh, mainstream view of when fire was, uh, was being used for the first time? Or did they have one? Yeah, not really. It's pretty um, tough to pinpoint, I'd say. Well, again, this this falls into that trap about uh, we kind of pay lip service to the idea that humans so far back we had the same brain skills as us but then we decide they're wandering around naked not sure how to use fire cold cold and naked because i tell you what even i mean i'm looking out over a rainy london street now it was cold back then too you're not gonna you're not gonna come to the uk whatever it was called back then probably just the k uh without knowing how to use fire right Interesting. Um, what about Easter Island? I, I like that part in your book as well. You talked a, a bit about uh, the difference between what the you know what the mainstream archaeologists think now compared to what you know you had some different senses of of how that might have been distorted or or just not really looked at in the big picture. Rapanui. The Rapanui. Yeah, we just yeah. had an email from a listener who had a pretty crazy experience in Rapanui with a rainbow. He found himself well, see, inside the rainbow. That wouldn't surprise me. It's uh, it's the navel of the world, and it quite clearly had um, spiritual significance before Polynesians lived there. Because otherwise, how did they know to go there when they when they did? Uh, and it, it's already had always had these kind of unusual associations. Uh, yeah. The trouble with the Pacific for mainstream archaeology is even though it literally covers half the surface of the planet, uh, they kind of don't want you to look at it uh, because they've spent this entire time. I mean, my uh, my family background is um, very Pacific-oriented um, and something I studied at university was this sort of myths uh, and how they overlap across the Pacific. But what they don't want you to do is really kind of pick at that because you, you've kind of had this story of human civilization as if it were a jigsaw being built everywhere else. But because the Pacific was sort of the last area to be kind of uneasily absorbed 
into specifically the British Empire, but, you know, there were Dutch holdings and, and that kind of thing as well. Uh, you kind of, you're in a situation where you have a jigsaw that you've put together and the last piece is the Pacific. So you pick up your piece and you look at the one remaining hole in the jigsaw puzzle and the piece doesn't fit. And it's like, well, shit. Uh, what that means is the entire picture, you've put it together wrong, but you sort of don't want to go back and do the jigsaw again. So they're kind of hoping to, to smash it in. Uh, and that's the trouble when it comes to analyzing the Pacific from a mainstream perspective. From an alternative history perspective, there is probably an equivalent, if not greater, amount of nonsense spoken about these things, like the sort of Lemuria and sunken continents in the middle of the Pacific, which just are not there. Um, so <laughs> trying to correlate in between the two of them means you have to look at the stories and take them seriously. It again comes back to to that idea, because if you get to anywhere basically east of New Zealand, they'll tell you they had a sunken homeland and they'll tell you when they came from it and they'll tell you what went on there. And, you know, they, they knew where everyone else was. So that, uh, Hawaiians knew where the Tahitians were. And, you know, because for a culture built on the sea, we view the ocean as a barrier. They view it as a highway. Uh, and, and the way you navigate through this is with that very explicit star law uh, in the book. Uh, in the case of Rapa Nui, this, it, it was quite clearly... There's very good archaeological evidence to indicate when it was colonized, around the sort of 800 to 1000 AD mark. But that doesn't mean that was the first time Rapa Nui kind of appeared in the cultures of uh, the Pacific. It was, I, I contend that it was a sacred site before that, because if you look at sort of uh, Dr. Robert Schock's research on some of the older Moais, there appears to be sort of different levels of uh, Moai building or different eras of Moai building on the island. Mm. And some of the oldest ones are the basalt ones. And you can kind of tell because they've been repurposed into the platforms that the more recent Moai will put on, and they have sort of different carvings on them, or they've been used to build circular huts and, and so on. So whatever the colonization event that brought the Rapa Nuians there between sort of 800 and 1000 AD, they did not, they were not the first brown men on the island. It, it, I, I would contend perhaps like something like Gobekli Tepe, it was a sacred place that people would come to visit from sort of further afield based on a particular sort of moment in their calendar. So I think it may, uh, that would be my contention as to how that happened. And it could have just been population pressures or disease or something that happened that led them to kind of permanently occupy it about a thousand and a bit years ago. Yeah. It could be something as easily easy as getting shipwrecked or something, I guess, right? Like you're not canoeing back. Well, yes and no, because, uh, I mean, there's no trees on the island now, but they, they could have built some. Yeah, there some. used to be quite quite a bit, but I wonder, like, they must, did they, were they traveling around in canoes back then, or were they building bigger ships? Well, uh, it depends. You, you sort of have uh, outrigger canoes, so they still have sails, and they can have multiple hulls and, and so on. They're, they're definitely fit for purpose for getting somewhere, but... The the trouble with the shipwreck hypothesis is we underestimate when we look at it on a map just how big the Pacific is. That is not even needle in a haystack stuff. Right. Uh, whereas it seems to me more likely that uh, a colonizing group head for a place they knew, um, kind of like, uh, you know, I don't know, you fall on hard times and you move into your log cabin in the woods. Like, we have this property... 
for whatever reason, we're going to permanently occupy it. it. It may have been intertribal war. It could have been anything. But the story of Rapa Nui in the Pacific is patently older than its first evidence of colonization about a thousand years ago. And it makes sense when you realize that there are genetic and, and sort of food-based evidence for trans-Pacific trading that goes back to before the end of the Ice Age. You, like the genes in, in the genes in the food in South America is showing up in what was Sunderland. So they're definitely getting across. This again comes back to that realization of just how complex and long-lived these cultures were. I mean, our, our culture, if you date it to you know, for no good reason other than this is how we measure our calendar, zero AD. If you think about the cultures that existed in Sunderland, um, they were around for 10 times yeah. minimum what we've done now. Yeah. So, of course, they made it to South America. Of course, they made it to Japan. Yeah. Uh, you know, you give us 10 times 2,000 years and, you know, we'll be we'll be out of the solar system. Yeah, and there's definitely those similarities between Gobekli Tepe and, and Eastern Island. Yeah, absolutely. Some really curious glyphs, which suggest like like the sort of H belt buckle uh, on the, the the main sort of T shaped pillars of Gobekli Tepe appears, and the, and the curious kind of long, um, dare I say, alien shaped hands uh, that sort of sit on the bellies. Uh, you can uh, these things emerge from the same kind of artistic movement, no question. And you don't have an artistic movement without at least some overlap of cosmologies, even though we're dealing with, you know, time differences of nine, 10,000 years. Hmm. So, uh, geez, what else? What next? Oh my God. So the, you know, you get quite a bit in your book, you, you talk quite a bit about Gobekli Tepe, and then you also talk quite a bit about Egypt and maybe we can get into, into the, uh, you know, you also talk about the history of the spirits as well. Maybe we should get into that a little bit. Yeah, sure. Take your pick. <clears throat> I guess Egypt <laughs> yeah. is, uh, well, we, you know, we just had John Anthony West on and then uh, every time I think I've sort of got the latest on Egypt, um, something new kind of creeps up and I heard some stuff in your book about, you know, Paul Horn and the acoustics in the King's chamber, which was very interesting. But I was wondering if you'd, if you'd uh, paid attention to that news article that came out about the thermal, thermal ano anomalies in one of the pyramids there. Yeah, I did. Um, again, a lot of the information that would uh, sort of cause the mainstream, there's no such thing as mainstream Egyptology. At this point in time, it is a corrupt rogue cult. Uh, but its kind of core tenets would melt like cake in the rain if we actually just turned around and looked at some of the information that's already there. Uh, the kind of, uh, the French in 1980 did sort of thermal imaging and, and they saw the internal uh, kind of, um, ramp, like a spiral ramp and the, and the corners cut out to get some of the, the rocks into it. There's been multiple um, dating tests of the Great Pyramid that shows it, it falls between sort of two and 500 years outside of uh, the Old Kingdom. So all these pieces are in place before you get to it. And now we're kind of, uh, Egyptology is sort of caught that I fucking love science disease, which is it's essentially PR for nonsense. Uh, so this whole, ooh, we might find um, Nefertiti's tomb behind Tutankhamun's. This guy was like, he was a nobody inbred, uh, you know, who was murdered because the, uh, presumably the priest was still angry at what his dad did. So 
we kind of lack that context to get the story right. And, and it's, I mean, I love John Anthony West. I think he's a, you know, he's an amazing person. And he will, he will constantly say that the most interesting and weirdest thing about Egypt is that it started off really complicated and, and sophisticated and kind of got worse. And it did. So when it comes to the old kingdom kind of building project, clearly it was a coherent building project. And clearly we have missed a trick when it comes to what they considered advanced technology versus what we do, because they didn't have land speeders and helicopters and all that other ancient aliens crap. But they were probably, given that they're the inheritors of a 50,000-year-old megalithic culture, they were probably quite good with stone. And this is where some of the information in the book, I think, people need to kind of reconsider. Because funnily enough, the the archaeological and scientific evidence in the Egypt chapter aligns more with John Anthony West than it doesn't because yeah, he's, yeah. Talking, he's, he's talking about the belief systems. But the fact that the Great Pyramid is some kind of, you know, resurrection guitar that you can stand in or lie down in corroborates his idea that this was a profoundly spiritual people. And what did he say? Which is not necessarily, I disagree slightly, but it's more right than it is wrong. Egypt was a one-issue civilization. Uh, and it was, it was that kind of, securing immortality in life, uh, particularly for kings, but just in general, like as as that kind of the magic of immortality you sort of democratize through the different kingdoms uh, to the point you get to the late period and then everyone has it. But that's that's still quite clearly there. And, and the kind of megalithic and, and stone building sophistication we find, we expect sophistication to be uh, metallurgical because ours is. Uh, but, you know, and, and we'll be great with metal again in 50,000 years time, or actually 45, we've been using it for a while, but they did stone for 50,000 years. Uh, so <laughs> by the time you get to the old kingdom, the idea that, oh, we have no idea where this came from. I'm like, well, I do. They had 50,000 years of stone making. They certainly got better at it. And probably if you consider the old kingdom to be the sort of apex of Neolithic and Paleolithic civilization. Then you have the first intermediate period where they get invaded and there's diseases and it collapses and, and they have to rebuild civilization. That's kind of, if we consider the old kingdom to be the beginning, it's the end of a story. Like it was, it, it kind of peaked with the fourth dynasty. Mm. Uh, and then there was some crap dynasties at the end and then the, the country collapsed and, uh, and then it had to rebuild. That's kind of like starting the book in chapter six. Yeah, it is absolutely that. Uh, and that's fine for a while uh, because the other side of it is you the ancient aliens types kind of inventing whole cloth uh, chapters one through five. And inevitably, there's probably a more parsimonious interpretation that falls halfway in between the two. And I, I mean, I mentioned in the book that I'm very open to the idea of uh, extraterrestrial visitation uh, throughout history. And again, much like Atlantis, it's something I've been looking for for 20 years. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not there yet. Like, I'm open to it. Uh, but the fact that it it doesn't happen so uneasy, like, it, let me back that up. The fact that 
uh, it appears to have happened too late for it to actually have made a difference. It kind of invalidates it. So the ancient alien hypothesis tends to be one that supports your preferred beginning of civilization. But the whole point of the book is that civilization didn't begin with Samaria and Egypt. We have this tremendous cultural complexity going further back. So I think, again, it's kind of like splitting it into two layers and going, well, let's actually work out what we do know about humans from 70,000 or so years ago to now and then see which bits may be extraterrestrial, which bits may be extra dimensional. Uh, the other part that I think problematizes it, I mean, I'm a huge Jacques Vallée fan. Mm-hmm. And if you if you look at instances of what, I mean, there are a couple of instances in history that I think are just flat out UFO visitations. Uh, there's the sort of Magonia experience where he got the word from where uh, Bishop uh, Abogad um, of Lyon was complaining about the sort of savages around him believing in these wizards from Magonia, which was a, you know, a a civilization in the clouds. Mm -hmm. But they'd actually captured one. Like all these ships coming from Magonia and one of them had sort of landed and and the local peasants had captured a couple of them. Now that's a weird, that's a contemporary and weird story. The other one is, again, it's another sort of Catholic one, but the uh, the miracle at Fatima looks mm. like just a flat out UFO incident. In both of these cases, you'll notice they don't form new religions. They're interpreted with the kind of religion of the time. Yeah. So even if there were, uh, and I, I mean, why why wouldn't there be? I mean, they, these are, seem to be fairly common occurrences. So even if there were <laughs> full blown, quote unquote, UFO incidents in Egypt or Samaria, they would be interpreted into the belief systems of the time because that sort of seems to be how it works. Uh, it, it can sort of warp within it and that's kind of one of Jacques Vallée's theses. But the idea that, our, like again, we have to credit our humans with, uh, well, our ancestors with a little bit more intelligence. You, you get this funny looking being coming down in his nuclear powered rocket ship to force you to mine gold to save his <laughs> atmosphere. I tell them to fuck off. They... Again, they're the same as us. You'd be like, no, I'm not doing that. (laughs) I'm going to eat you, as a matter of fact. (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't mean they came down and helped build the pyramids or anything. They could have just been, you know, doing what they have been doing for the last few hundred years as well, just sort of slightly intervening. Yeah, I still like the idea that there's been high civilization, like, throughout forever, you know? Like, a million years ago, there was high civilization that just got fucking annihilated by something and... It all just yeah, starts over think something again. geological or something? Geological, cosmological, self-whatever, well, yeah, you know? Well, when you're dealing with long enough timelines, that, that's entirely possible. There's Especially. nothing, There's nothing. In, I mean, as I said, Starships is a story of kind of our little colonial expedition. But that's, I mean, it's a 70,000-year-old story, so it's kind of longer than most people dealing with mythology uh, are used to thinking about. But it's that's an eye blink in uh, the existence of humans and the existence of the planet. So there's absolutely no reason why uh, we couldn't have had multiple full-on resets. Uh, people underestimate how much stuff you can find on an archaeological basis. But again, here in London, uh, most of the Victorian stuff is gone. And you find things. That, I mean, the Victorian era was a hundred and a bit years ago. And you sort of dig stuff out and go, oh, look at this. There's a whole theater here. And you go, how did you lose that? <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> it's, it's not even that long ago. So you, we don't, uh, you know, if, if it's not your career, people tend to underestimate just how difficult archaeology is when it comes to finding things. So, yeah, I don't, 
I don't at all rule out that as a possibility. I wonder, you know, I, I'd like to think that in my lifetime they're going to find something crazy on the moon or on Mars or on, you know, one of these outer planets. They're going to find some sort of fucking cathedral or monolith or something. Well, how old are you? 34. Yeah, so, well, they have. <laughs> <laughs> Particularly when it comes to Mars. I'm, you know, I go in and out on the moon. But that, uh, I, don't, I don't know if you've had Dr. John Brandenburg on, but... No, no, but we're going to have to. Yeah. You have to. My goodness. he. I mean, he's a full-blown rocket scientist and Mars scientist. But uh, So he's been around the people that have known since the 70s at JPL and NASA that the stuff, there's stuff on Mars that's artificial. That's not even... Uh, that's not even woo anymore. Like the Russians, the Chinese, everyone, everyone knows about it. It's just that NASA stands for never for a straight answer. It's it's a paramilitary organization. So you know, fortunately for you, you have lived long enough for uh, mankind to find weird shit on Mars. Perfect. Can I get some up close, high def pictures of it yet? <laughs> I want to see yeah. what alien infrastructure looks like, or is it even alien? Like, I mean, I I think. What do you think about where we came from? Do you think we came from Mars down the line someplace? Uh, it's a very good question. I don't know if you're familiar. I mean, maybe you guys have been reading the blog, but are you familiar with the pimp hypothesis? Oh, yeah. This is one of Darren's favorites. Yeah. He was telling is that me the about bonobo the... fucked a pig like a couple hundred thousand years yeah, ago? Yeah, yeah, I so, like how you, I like it's how it's, it's pimp instead of... Uh, what would it be? Chig? Bip or chig. Yeah. It was always going to be pimp. Yeah, good. Yeah, well, again, this this is kind of the, the difference between having data and interpretations. It is, it's unavoidable on a biological basis that we have morphological characteristics of pigs and chimps. So, again, we get back to the, the sort of evolutionary guess that we came from monkeys. You go, yeah, well, what about half the pig stuff? Like um, our the cells in our body and the shape of the nose and uh, even things like how the subcutaneous fat layer works are all from pigs, and they are definitively from pigs. The question becomes how we ended up with a half pig, half chimp, and how that became a human. Now, this isn't a story in, in starships because that we're talking now at a time depth of between three and two million years ago when... That happened. And, and the, literally the only kind of scientific guess as to how it would have occurred is genuinely a male pig having sex with a female bonobo, but then back-crossing repeatedly so that that um, octoparrot monster that managed to come to term then went and did it again and again and again for sort of five or six generations. Now, that strikes me as extremely unlikely for a number of reasons. It's creepy, but two... What you tend to happen when you cross like breeds fully like that, uh, they end up being infertile. So if you look at like donkeys and mules and so on, when you when you crossbreed them, they tend not to be able to breed. And humans have done quite a good job of breeding. So again, we're into this weird tantalizing situation of going, well, I don't know where humans came from, but there are some scientific kind of findings that need to be adequately modeled that look kind of creepily like uh, interpretations of some ancient myths about how we were built. And, I, you know, I don't know what the answer to that is, but it's nevertheless there. Hmm. And the big question is, why do I like bacon so much? Or why are there so many rules <laughs> against eating pig? Yeah, yeah. well, that's, that's, that's what I thought is interesting, right? Is like, you know, maybe they know, you know, maybe the Jewish religion or... 
I think that's not just Jewish people, is it? Is that uh, is that a uh, Islam thing too? It's Jews, it's Islam, there's sort of different Babylonian groups. So the Jews kind of inherited it. It was probably, I mean, in, to be fair, it was probably a sacred symbol of a god that they decided didn't exist or didn't want to be associated with. So if it was a sacred symbol for a goddess or so on, they would have said, we're not eating pig. Uh, but nevertheless, why was it a sacred symbol for that goddess? And then you sort of move further down. You know, it's it's turtles all the way down when you start to think like this. Huh. So yeah, that's weird. I mean, who knows? I mean, bonobos seem like they're pretty, pretty open to sexual things. So I mean, you know, maybe it's an, who knows? I've seen stranger shit on the history channel or on the Discovery Channel. I thought you were going to say you've seen stranger shit on the internet. Yeah, well, that's definitely, that, definitely that. That's but what I, mean, I thought. I'm like, how strange can they get on the Discovery Channel? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. So, Clear your internet history. So what people are going to wonder about this Mars thing. So, because, I mean, you know, obviously it's contention. I mean, every day you see a new picture of this new anomaly that's uh, just, you know, looks like pareidolia to me. But, you know, you do wonder there was the face on Mars and all that kind of stuff. So what, what kind of thing are you talking about? Are you talking about megalithic structure or... or just some of them, some, but again, so Dr. John Brandenburg's research is another one of those open and shut pieces of science that needs explanation, kind of like the pimp, kind of like, you know, a whole bunch of stuff in starships. Mm-hmm. And it is this, which is that there is uh, an elevated level of xenon-129 in the Martian atmosphere at a time depth of between 250 and 500 million years ago. Now, xenon-129 is a weapon signature. It does not occur in nature. We have it in the human atmosphere because we've dropped a lot of bombs. And so the only place that has a spike in the atmosphere that looks like ours is Mars, and, and the trouble with half-lives is that, I mean, it sounds like it's a, it's a big window, but it's, it's, it's a very, very old weapon signature. So it's either, it's somewhere between half a billion and 250 million years ago, long before there were humans. Like there, there were some kind of shitty dinosaurs on the Earth at the time, um, all the crap kind of like Triassic ones. But nevertheless, that weapon signature needs to be answered. And that's how he kind of got caught up in the whole Mars thing when he was uh, working in the 70s, because he was sort of showing it to people at, or showing it to a JPL scientist in a library while he was waiting to have it photocopied or photostatted or whatever it's called in the 70s. Uh, and like a nuclear physicist, because he was a plasma physicist, looked at it and said, huh, somebody nuked Mars. And then he kind of went quiet and walked off because he realized he'd said something <laughs> in a public space that he should not have said. But that information has been available at like a NASA and JPL level since the 70s. This is sort of um, Viking atmosphere data. So you, you say what you want about the face on Mars or any of the other structures. Oh, and the other thing that kind of maybe perhaps further corroborates that these structures were artificial, because I believe they were, at least some of them, is that uh, Dr. Brandenburg's actually worked out where the two giant bombs that were dropped from space, because they were um, atmospheric explosions, otherwise they'd be craters, kind of like what we did to Hiroshima. Uh, You blow it up over a civilization and it does more damage. And there are two of them, and they're, they're near, um, it was Galactus Chaos, which has other kind of face-looking things, and Cydonia. So, you know, that's interesting. Yeah. There's weapon signatures in the atmosphere over areas where um, NASA will swear black and blue that there aren't artificial structures, <laughs> yeah. but every time the satellites go near it, oh, what do you know, we can't see it, or, or it vanishes. And this is the kind of, you have to be, like, it, it's not even skepticism to 
It's not even skepticism anymore. It's denialism if people don't actually want to look at this information. I don't know what it is, but I know what I'm being lied to and I know what it isn't and what it isn't is nothing. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of it is just like misinformation, really. I mean, most people, even in the age of the internet, is still kind of in its infancy. And most people, I mean, especially, I don't think we've even got to the generation yet that's really starting to be open up to most of these ideas. Like, I think that's still probably my kids' kids away. Yeah, there might be something to that. Uh, I hope it's a little bit closer, but you're probably right. These things, you know, mankind, I mean, yeah, inevi- it seems mankind that, inevitably disappoints. Yeah, it almost seems like, honestly, as, as, as cryptic as it sounds, the only fucking way that this stuff moves forward is for the old guard to start dying off. For the people oh. that are, are kind of sitting in the seats of power... To pass it on to the next guy, and he's going to be, you know, he's going to be a little more open. maybe ha- three quarters of the way. He's going to be full on with whatever his mentor told him, but he's going to have that that extra little bit because you know his, you know, it's almost like my kids will still be affected because they're going to be starting school in what you know a couple of years, and they're still teaching bullshit in school right now. Some of it's getting worse. But do you think? I mean, that sort of presupposes that uh, the conspiracy is for relatively benign reasons. That is, they simply don't want to, you know, make us anxious at the reality of uh, civilizations outside of Earth. And I I have, uh, I don't think that is the reason for the sort of omerta at a um, sort of super elite level for this information. Uh, I think there are multiple reasons for it, but we don't end up getting that disclosure largely because most of the stuff that we consider UFOs over the 20th century was, you know, black projects that inevitably involve really bad things like, you know, testing psychedelics on kids and and all this kind of stuff. So you, you can't ever get out of a out of an official in in the US or Britain or anywhere else that was doing it people to come and say well turns out it's correct because then you kind of have to work down the list and go no no that was us stealing your children no no that was us you know testing weaponized anthrax in the New York subway that and there's too many skeletons in the closet for it uh, in in terms of sort of space industry politics another thing that I think Dr Brandenburg covers in his book is that anything that's in space that's kind of robot-based. So sending drones and little robots is, is a JPL mission. Uh, anything that requires humans is a NASA mission or a, other sort of private organizations underneath it, which means JPL has a financial sort of in- incentive or imperative to not find anything that would cause us to send astronauts because then they have to give the mission and the billions they get every year over to it. So uh-huh. the JPL, it, yeah, if it's a drone or a robot, JPL does it. So you kind of have layers of um, sort of financial motivations or, or poor system signals that, that prevent it at that beginning. So I think you'll get within the space industry, at least the public one, different people knowing different things because there's so much money, especially during the Cold War, there's just so much money involved. So the idea that you could get JPL to turn around and go, so there's some shit on the moon that you missed. Um, that That's a recipe for disaster from running a business's perspective. But then there's the public, all the public funded uh, satellites and all that. I just heard that uh, one of the Canadian uh, crowdfunded CubeSat ones is already 
they've raised enough to build the satellite. Now they just got to launch it. So, I mean, Darren, it's only a matter of time before. That's the I kind can... of thing you might even be able to get uh, someone like, I mean, if you could get the right people in place to start sucking up to, you know, some sort of philanthropic billionaire, like what's his name from PayPal, Musk, Elon Musk, maybe he'd give you a deal. 90% off. <laughs> no, we need we need better billionaires. We need kind of like the weirder 19th century, 20th century ones that kind of lock themselves in their room and bottle their own urine rather than the ones we have now, <laughs> which are crap that, that sort of want to live forever in this horrible bro future of you know, paleo dieting and, and supplements and, I don't know, living forever on Mars and all this just horrible Silicon Valley nonsense. Yeah. But they've, they've all bought into this transhumanist nonsense, and it is nonsense. So we just need one. We need some kind of weirdo billionaire who isn't interested in that because finding this stuff out is, is actually very low cost. Like from a billionaire perspective, I don't think we can afford it. Right, yeah. But it could even just be the right inheritor now. Again, yeah, we just got to wait a couple generations until Elon Musk's grandkids listen to the Grimerica show to this episode, and they're like, "Let's fucking go to Mars." Episode. Well, the secret. Yeah. What I mean, what about the secret space program already going to Mars? I mean, I'm not necessarily sold on that, but I'm sold that I almost, you know, stuck on the belief that that there are humans flying around in in spaceships. It's yeah, not for sure. All, it's not all ET. So, I mean, why can't they go to Mars? If they can fly around and do the crazy things they're doing in our atmosphere, maybe they are going to Mars. I would think, in my mind, it would all be in military. Like, if they're doing anything on the moon, it's so that they can fuck up Russia or, you know, something. Oh, I don't know. I think it's beyond that. I think the people yeah. that are involved in that are beyond the geopolitics of the world, I think. Well, they are. And there's also, I mean, this is, it's sort of quite a good point when you realize from the mid 20th century on, uh, it's Dr. Farrell's point. In the mid 20th century, the American uh, security apparatus realized they had three problems. They had the Soviets, they had the Nazi international, and they had the UFO phenomenon, whatever <laughs> it was. So, And as a result, you get uh, the NSA and the CIA and an explosion of unlimited money going into these black projects. So it, it's quite clearly not the Russians. Uh so we don't actually know whether, uh, this is really dumb and I don't mean it that way, but we don't actually know how much of that kind of deranged secret space spending is for our benefit. So I don't think it's fucking up the Russians. I think it's just the sort of unbelievable wealth. Like there, there are meteors made of diamond out there, you know. Uh, I think it's the kind of unbelievable wealth component. And if there is a military aspect well, there's clearly a military aspect to it, but if there is a military component, it may well be uh, based on an off-world threat that we just don't have visibility over. But I, I mean, there's clearly a secret space program because you start to see all these pieces like fusion engines and whatever tumble out of it. Uh, and also, we, you know, the West spent unlimited money on it over, you know, over 60 years. The three of us could get into space with unlimited money and the ability to kill with impunity. I think we could get Graham into space cheaper than that because I'm willing <laughs> yeah. to, I'm willing to cut some corners. <laughs> he doesn't have to come back. He can be like that Russian dog. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. We'll just podcast him into oblivion. Yeah. Uh, I would but, say greed. I mean, I would agree that, you know, if it wasn't military, greed would be right up there. So I put I put nothing past that kind of uh, – it's absurd to call it 
military or government or secret government when the majority of it is private. The majority of government is, is sort of, it's a fulfillment office for, you know, some very powerful private people. So it, at, at that kind of level, at that depth, the difference between private and not is is irrelevant. But I would put, I, I see no evidence why would I? I see no evidence for it that they've made it to Mars now, but I would not be like even at the tiniest bit surprised if he woke up tomorrow and found out, oh yeah, they've been using these sort of fusion rockets to go backwards and forwards there for the last 15 years. <laughs> um, like it's just that the, the the old Russian satellite accidentally took a photo of it. Uh, I, I put nothing past them and, and it, it, it's kind of predicted in the model of unlimited spending and, and a, a century of kind of pulling back behind the curtain any piece of technology that gets slightly interesting so that we've sort of been dealing with only half of physics for the last 60 yes, years. exactly. So you, you put those pieces together. And I mean, I, I've, I've run projects for my real job, like I've run projects that aren't anything to do with this. I work in media, but you sort of give me enough money and three decent developers. And, and you know, we create wonders, useless wonders, because it's in advertising and what have you. But you think... Goodness, if I had an underground fucking base and and 500 nuclear physicists and a whole lot of money, uh, even uh, that's what I mean. Like even I could get, <laughs> even I could get to Mars. So it, it's speculative, but it's speculative based on the amount of money we've pissed up the wall on these things. That's what I think. People I wonder how cheap you do. This reminds me of the astronaut farmer again. Did you watch it yet? No. Have you seen the astronaut farmer? I also have not. Oh well, that's just. Drop that. I might as well drop that. <laughs> you guys got to watch it by the next show. But what what I think people underestimate is is the amount of technology that's going on in those labs you're talking about, right? Like there's there's uh, you know all the labs in the states, for example. You know there's the one uh, Brookhaven and Bell Labs and all those secret. They they have thousands and thousands of scientists. Like it's not happening in academia. The technology is happening no. in secret in these labs. Like that's where. And, and we also underestimate just how many people are playing with it. So, again, a, a personal career anecdote from about five, six years ago when I was working for uh, a media business that covered the global telecoms industry. So I was at a really boring conference in Milan because it's sort of the, the back end of telecoms. You think it's fun like Android <laughs> mobiles and stuff. It's not. It's like fiber to the home and all that. It's just, you know, so boring. And I walk in to the sort of big auditorium in there. And this is, yeah, 2009. And they're at the front desk of these large plasma screens that had uh, 3D TVs. And not that that's that impressive, even in 2009, except for the fact that I wasn't wearing glasses. And the business that built it was like an Indian fiber or cable company. And so I'm sort of standing there looking at these screens that have three-dimensional kind of spaceships and uh, asteroids. And a fiber company in India built that. Uh, so the kind of... the, the <laughs> the capex that we're talking about is is enormous, especially when uh, if you look at sort of the research of Dr. Paul uh, Laviolette, yeah. you can kind of get into space for uh, not even 140 million using some of the technology. Like and not just like get into space, but like fuck about in the solar system, get into space. So when you sort of realize, speaking of cutting corners, not just how much money the the U.S. defense industry has spent, but how little you actually have to spend and how many people out there on a corporate level have their own kind of Q branches where they're just messing with weird stuff. Like, like Sony found telepathy in the, in 2010, 11, uh, and they published it. By the way, telepathy exists. And they worked <laughs> this out. 
they work this out because you, you know when you're when you're actually game testing and you have multiple players, they had the best possible kind of volumes of data to work out who could predict uh, the movements of a, of another player in another room or or so on. And so they actually had massive volumes of data, got some statisticians to sit down and go, yeah, telepathy exists. Here you go. Here's the information. They found it by accident, game testing. Yeah. So can you imagine if you're doing something a little bit more interesting than that and you find something a little bit more interesting, you don't have to be like Boeing or Raytheon to kind of pull on that thread? And you don't have to disclose it to the public. God, no. Well, that's why all this stuff is private. That was, thank you, um, Bush Sr. You know, that's what his job was, moving from the CAA to um, becoming Veep and then president. But he, he ran the CAA, and then when he becomes vice president, he's the one in charge of giving out top secret clearances to private contractors. And then you have, during the 80s, you have Reagan and him selling all these government-funded toys to um, the private sector, which he's also just kind of stapled top secret clearance badges <laughs> to. And you go, hang on. <laughs> well, that's interesting. So most of it is there. Like, and that's, that's a kind of paper trail where you go, the, the idea that Star Wars was shut down, it wasn't. It was sold. It's the same as Harp. It's just that if you watch the news on NBC, they go, oh, they're shutting down Harp. And I'm like, no, they're not. They <laughs> sold it. <laughs> and Stargate too, probably. And somewhat not really sold, but it's still going, I bet. Yeah, well, you get some really enigmatic comments because uh, we only have a tiny sliver of that story because only part of it is out. Yeah. But um, if some of the things Dr. Targ says in that kind of, I love him, I'd love to adopt him. Like, yeah, he, yeah. I think he's adorable. Yeah. But uh, some of the, the enigmatic statements he makes, like, I would not be surprised if there is an abasement in the Pentagon where this stuff still continues. And you go, well, frankly, Dr. Targ, I'm going to take that to the bank. Uh, because I know there are things you can and can't say, and that's quite a good way of sort of enigmatically saying, oh, well, they're clearly still using this stuff, because it worked. It worked for 25 years. Why would you stop using something that's extremely low-cost that works? Yeah, yeah. Interesting. I suppose that's that's it's that easy to make something go black, just give it to the private. Here you go. That's But that's exactly the point, and that's what the church committee did. Um, it, it kind of pushed all that weird, creepy MK Ultra, uh, sort of see-through walls, mind control stuff into the private sector because they weren't going to... Uh, they, they invested a lot of money and, and time into these really dangerous technologies. They're not going to just, because of some congressman, just get rid of it. Uh, and if, it, if none of it worked, I mean, Richard Holmes said in the 70s to the church committee, like, oh, it didn't work. I said, well, then why did you shred two million documents before this meeting? If it didn't work, Mr. Helms. Uh, he worked for Bush, of course. But, yeah, this stuff goes private where you can't Freedom of Information Act it. Hmm. So I do want to, I do want to, I hate jumping back from this topic because this is, I love this chat as well, but if I was listening to this episode and I was listening to the John Anthony West episode, I'd be like, okay, you guys have never addressed uh, the, you know, the pyramids and how they were built. I don't think we ever talked to John about that. And I know you, you do address it in your book a little bit. So, you know, we talked about it, you know, it's not necessarily aliens or anything like that, but um, the, 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 the current, the current paradigm of how the pyramids were built, it's really hasn't been answered yet. Right. Like in, in your mind, is it still open for debate? Uh, 
an actual child would not believe the official story of how the Great Pyramid works. And I, I proved that when I asked my nephew, when I, when I tried to describe the sort of ramp theory to him, because he's a Thomas the Tank Engine nut and, and likes trucks and all this stuff. And he's just like, you should have seen the look on his face. Like, this is clearly the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Because the, the world expert in the Giza complex, Mark Lehner, says because we can't find the workers' villages, uh, because it turns out the things he thought were workers' villages were actually residences for high-born foreign visitors, uh, which is not something you expect of a tomb. Anyway, there they are. So he's like, okay, so we have a problem. We can't find the ramp and we can't find the workers' village. And we're not talking like, you know, picking up a few people in a Walmart car park. We're we're talking 20,000 people to build this thing in 20-something years, minimum. So he's decided that they lived on the ramp that was used to build it. And by the way, to build such a ramp, you end up using more mass than in the actual pyramid. Right, so they, right. they sort of they, they leave it behind. And so he's like, well, the reason we can't find it is maybe they lived on it. I'm like, do you mean they lived on the, like, what you need to do is go and ask a foreman how fucking dumb that is. To actually put, because it's not just humans like in sleeping bags. There's there's kitchens and latrines and everything, and you want to you want to be sliding twenty forty ton rocks through a village in the sky to build this pointy tomb. Like th- there's actually no way you can not laugh at the official story of it. Uh, unfortunately, that absurdity, that that just inability to to step outside a patently wrong model leads to a lot of kind of zanier theories that come rushing in right, that aren't particularly right. helpful. And I, frankly, I think some of them are, are full-blown uh, co-intel attempts uh, because if you, if you get the pyramid right, if you get Egypt right, I don't mean right like I found the answer, I mean if you realize the implications of the old kingdom and specifically the kind of Giza complex, if you realize that, it, it changes everything about your life. And that's kind of where one of the things I love about John Anthony West is that, that he, he realizes that when you actually get what Egypt is about, there's no getting the toothpaste back into that tube. It's like sex. Well, it's... Um, <laughs> I don't know, you went from toothpaste to sex? Yeah. <laughs> no, that's what John... can go from pre-roll anywhere to sex. <laughs> that's what John says. He says, because, you know, you think you know what it is until you, until you get there in Egypt, and then it, it's completely different. Well, so Egypt has been, since, it, like, since the dynastic period, Egypt has been a, almost, uh, almost a remote initiation machine that can initiate people at a distance, just by thinking about it. So if you look at its inspiration through the kind of Dark Age uh, sort of Arabic alchemists and then up through the Renaissance and and into the kind of hermetic sort of Freemasonic underground of the, you know, 16, 1700s to uh, the building of Washington, D.C., to all this stuff, like uh, to Napoleon, to whoever. Like if you think about Egypt for long enough... It changes you, uh, which is what it like that. That was their kind of easy confidence about being, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're we're that civilization. We're the mirror of heaven. Where you know, <laughs> that's kind of what this is about. So, but particularly with the the Giza pyramid, you start to realize that there are things that are more important. And quite frankly, we are 
it's again coming back to that very good and child view of the development of civilization. Quite frankly, it makes you realize we are not even close to the smartest humans that have lived in the last little while. Because uh, there's just nothing like it. And there are about 50 things. You, you could go on to the hundreds, but there are about 50 things in the Giza Plateau that break history just by looking at them. And so we have to look at them and then kind of decide which of the wackier theories matches that uh, rational or scientific interpretation of the anomalies. So, for instance, there are things there that are built uh, out of diorite, which is stronger than steel. Uh, and so you'll go to the Egyptian museum and and you'll see the statue of Khafre, or the Cairo museum, rather, and you'll see the statue of Khafre made of diorite, and it's beautiful. And next to it, you'll see a copper tool and and like a, a, a stone ball. And they say they built this with this. And it, the, the copper would bend like a wet herring on diorite. But those are the only tools that Egypt is allowed to have had. And you go, well, that's, actually, that's a scientific impossibility. Like you actually... Like back to the drawing board, Egyptologists that actually can't happen. They're like, yes, it can. And you go, no, no, it can't. Like, it, let, let me. It just takes a real long there. time. <laughs> but it, it physically cannot. You, you got to get some cannot. water, and then you put some sand on there, and there then you no just get. You just on. keep at it. Okay, perseverance. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's stronger than sand. Like it, it's stronger than steel. You can't actually. That's the thing. Like it, it breaks the model fundamentally right there. To say nothing of like, that's what I mean. It's just one piece, but you get dozens of them. And one of the ones I know John's a fan of is the uh, sort of convex um, crystal kind of like they're, they're essentially uh, contact lenses, but they're the, the crystal pieces that were put in the eyes of some of the old kingdom statues. One, there's obviously some kind of light reflective thing going on there to do with, you know, bringing the god down into that statue or what have you, but. Nevertheless, they have shaped quartz into, one, what is a lens. So uh, it kind of begs the question of exactly when it was we got telescopes, because if they're making lenses for statues, surely someone's going to look through one of them before they put it in the eye and go, oh, things appear closer in this. <laughs> but also you actually can't, that's another one, you can't curve uh, the quartz to do that without a, uh, without a sort of stone Masonic method that uh, we we don't have. Uh, and unfortunately, those things have led us to provide technological answers, which is that Egypt was, Egypt had batteries and buzz saws and all this, which seems extremely unlikely, to say the least. Uh, nevertheless, we're, we're left with, well, they have these amazing uh, technological capabilities, capabilities specifically with stone. But again, coming back to my point, but when you realize that this is the apex of a like of a culture that has been or cultures that have been dealing with stone for tens of thousands of years well of course they're going to be shit hot at it these things you know the great pyramid is the iphone of the old kingdom hmm. so i wonder if it doesn't somehow go back to like you see some of those those different walls and like in south america and how how perfectly the stones interlock it makes you wonder if it's not some somehow liquefying it well, it is. The, the book goes into Dr. Davidovitz's theory about that. Uh, again, because of our sort of technological journeys through the Industrial Revolution being very um, sort of metal-centric, it's only been in the last 50 or so years that we've looked at how you kind of... You, we've looked at the chemical components of stone and whether you can do these things. And the reality is... 
Uh, again, my, Egyptology is kind of, well, it's not only a, a cult, but it's a humanity subject. Uh, it doesn't require any science skills at all. You just kind of go to Egypt and, and make stuff up, genuinely. Uh, the people who've kind of pushed alternate Egyptology forward have had specialist skills that Egyptologists can't have. So Robert Baval had decades of experience building in the desert. So of course he's going to have an under like that's he's, he's, that's why he formulated the Orion theory and all this because you could kind of understand what they were doing standing there looking at it and different sight lines. Dr. Davidovitz is a sort of chemical engineer who's been who's a concrete specialist, so he knows how you liquefy rock uh, and and have it re-solidify. Uh, so I actually think that is that's essentially the only uh, not the only. He is heading in the right direction with that. We may not know the full uh, process as to how, but you can actually build, not that Khufu built it, but you can actually build a pyramid in his time period if it's a liquefied process. So you kind of build the base and then you use sort of lye and um, sort of shavings off the nearby wadis and you, you, they chemically react. So you have these sort of pits of mildly toxic cement effectively and then you sort of walk up the pyramid and it, it means you don't have the ramp problem because it's just humans carrying baskets of muck uh, and you just kind of tip it in and and off you go and he actually did tests of if that was the case what you would find is that the um the pyramid crete would uh, align to magnetic north uh, because it's not like you, you're sort of forming a stone at that time, and that's what stones do that have uh, granite in particular, anything that has components that can be magnetized. And he did a test of three stones, and two of them were, uh, which kind of suggests that he's correct. They were concretizing it in some way. But funnily enough, understanding that makes you realize, or, or makes you look again at the Carfrey statue made of diorite, because there are no tool marks on it. Uh, but if they had a way of sort of building it out of molds, that goes some way to, I mean, I'm using the words glibly, but that goes some way to sort of explaining how you end up with avenues of identical sphinxes in Karnak and, and all this stuff. You go, well, if they're, they're coming out of molds, this is starting to make a lot more sense. Uh, and, and why wouldn't it when you realize that the chemical components required were all there? Like it was wood ash from um, cooking fires and it was um, Nile water during the flood that turned into clay uh, and lye, uh, which again, during the building of the Great Pyramids, according, according to Herodotus, they would ask for the um, ash from cooking fires from up and down Egypt. Whether it happened or not, I mean, he wrote thousands of years after they were built. You start to see that this, this, this begins to make some kind of alchemical sense, especially as you think of the folk memories of what Egypt was to the Arab alchemists and so on. And, and alchemy is that kind of very stone-specific form of mysticism. So the idea that the guys who invented it, like Imhotep, were, were masters of working with stone, and that's what they were asked to do. Because for them, these, these stone structures are kind of like our machines. They're immortality machines. They're, they're magical devices uh, and and you, I'm not sure where it's going. Like I, I go to pains in the book to say, this is a correlation of research that allows us to kind of reposition and start looking in in maybe that direction. And uh, and and I think we just need to be honest with ourselves. The pushback again is almost inherited that 
Oh, of course they of course they couldn't do that because they were dumb. And you go, ah, but you just said they weren't. And you get caught back in that hunter-gatherer trap. And you go, well, let's be reasonable about it. We have the scientific evidence and we can all reach a consensus that their brains were the same size as ours or slightly larger. Where's the problem? Isn't there a couple other arguments they're using now to say that that wasn't the case? Like, I don't know if it was the com- composition of some of the stones or... But I mean, I think you're you're thinking geopolymers is that what they're called? Yeah, Yeah, the geopolymer stuff. Yeah, I think it's uh, it could be a mixture of both, is what you're you're saying, right? Like, (laughs) it is definitively a mixture of both, at least when it comes to the Great Pyramid, because some of the uh, uh, so the the stone inside um, the sort of relief chambers, which relieve nothing, as I said, it's a guitar. Like, yeah, yeah, that's what I wanted to get into. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but they definitively came from Aswan. So there, there are pieces of stone that have been definitively identified from elsewhere in Egypt. But that begs the question of why. Uh, and, and the why is magical, quite clearly. These stones had some kind of magical component uh, that had to be built into something else. So again, you kind of have, well, we have this geopolymer skill, uh, but if we're building a resurrection machine, uh, we need these kind of stones that have a magical quality for whatever reason. We won't know. It's so far ago. But that that matches how magic works and how uh, rituals are constructed. And it kind of supports the case that not everything in it is made out of concrete because they're, they're, the rest of the Giza Plateau, they're quite clearly using stone very deliberately. Uh, in the Osiris shaft, you have... Um, single block carved stones from sort of dynasty zero that don't exist in that size anywhere in Africa. So they've brought a specific type of stone from outside, not just Egypt, but outside Africa to carve into the shape of this quote-unquote sarcophagus and, and, and stick down underneath the ground. So the stone was their paint uh, and th- there are dozens of pieces uh, across uh, the Giza kind of, well, actually all of um, the Old Kingdom project, but in, in Giza in particular, you have these sort of translucent or alabaster walls that would have looked amazing with the light behind them. And you have, as John Anthony West points out, the kind of uh, redundant curved corners in some of the valley temples, which would be there for sonic reasons. Like if 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 this was designed to be quote-unquote, activated or used or used sound in some sort of ritual way, well, then it starts to make sense. Like, why would you go to the engineering effort of curving the corner if it wasn't for that? And and we can just kind of sort of spy through the gloom the pieces of something much more sophisticated mm. uh, than we previously thought was there. I don't know what they are because we haven't been looking for them. And the reality is we'll, we'll never get it correct but we don't. We kind of don't need to. Like the the, the mainstream Egyptological version is zero percent correct. If my book is point one percent correct, <laughs> we're making like progress. that's a win. Exactly. <laughs> I'm prepared to be patient. What, what, so what about what about the idea that the pyramid is what fucked up Mars? No. No. It, yeah. Well, the, the timings are off. Um, the pyramid is. It's not an ice age survival. Um, the the thinking behind it is. Uh, I, I don't think, I, I think John Anthony West, no, where we depart is he's mistaken some astronomical numbers for real numbers. Uh, and and it's kind of confusing because the Egyptians thought their civilization came from the stars and their notion of kingship. So when you get back into their sort of before time, same as the Sumerians, they're measuring in very astrological numbers. Um, the sort of 36,000, the 72, all these, are, you get your processional numbers or mm-hmm. your sothic cycle numbers. So um, 
the pyramid is significantly older than um, Khufu's reign, but it's not that much older. So it's sort of like pre-dynastic oh, to Dynasty right. Zero. But that that's that makes sense. It, like that would be if you kind of push it back to there and you realize that's the best example of the engineering for the sort of old kingdom project, then it falls into what Robert Temple calls a logic of decline <clears throat> uh, because the, the, this one was quite important. They did this one right. Uh, you sort of see other ones and go, especially by the time you get to the final sort of dynasties of the old kingdom, they are unimpressive objects. Hmm. What about the uh, the acoustics in the ch- king's chamber then? Like I was, when I was reading your book... I was thinking about it being like a uh, modern day float tank, like a sensory deprivation chamber in a, in a way. Like maybe that's what they use to like, fucking to go, work for go to uh, no, because like if they're obsessed with the afterlife and, and you know if that induces a, an OBE, like an out of body experience, to that could be where they you know why they traveled. That's they traveled. exactly. It's pretty much spot on what I think. Uh, again, again, if you look at where. You put the pieces of Egypt together and go, well, from the from Dynasty Zero, we see a lot of the shamanic components which survived into some of the royal festivals like the Heb Sed Festival, which means they were getting off their face on drugs. I've got a few New Kingdom uh, medicals which have really alarming medical advice in them like uh, something, they think it's thrush that you sort of cure by putting like onion in vagina and you know, this doesn't sound pleasant. But the rest of it is filled with things like blue lotus and opium and, and famously Tutankhamun had uh, American drugs in him like, you know, coca and well actually marijuana had been around in uh, India from before that. So you have a, a, a civilization or, or a culture that has loads of drugs, is really, really good, pardon the pun, at stones, <laughs> uh, is obsessed with the stars and builds this kind of precision stone guitar you can stand in or some kind of chamber, uh, and chambers within them as well. And you start, again, it's one of those things where you, you can spy between these pieces what they were doing and whatever whatever kind of... Uh, afterlife journey. I mean, as as a magician, I don't have like I'm not saying they're wrong about this. I I would not be surprised if, like, I kind of wish I, it it still worked and we could all go in there and you know, see what happens. Yeah. Uh, but if you put all these pieces together, then the rest of the kind of anomalies start to make sense. So, like, why is the what they thought were the workers' villages are now kind of accommodation? Like, it's it's a hotel for highborn visitors from the Near East or or, oh. or what have you. And you go, hang on a minute. Well, I'm not, if I'm, because travel is quite dangerous. So if I live in, if I'm a Hittite or what the Hittites became, so if I'm in like Anatolia, I'm not going to go and rubberneck some, you know, tyrant's pointy tomb on the other side of the world. That's quite dangerous. I will, however, go and visit a sacred site that is a combination of a map of the other world and the other world. And I will participate in the rituals there to secure my own immortality. That's something to get out of bed for. And, And that's where I think we kind of... We need to start heading in that direction because the Giza complex, one, kind of interrelates with a whole bunch of golden ratio numbers and, and so on. So you, from a magical perspective, this is a ritual landscape designed to do one thing, mm-hmm. which is secure uh, an, an afterlife that is in some way associated with the stars for whatever reason. Uh, and so you... you when we start to look at that, then you can kind of line it up against Paleolithic cultures and 
and so on. And you see this sort of through line of, frankly, Western magic. Wow. That's, uh, yeah, that's fascinating. It's like a shamanic uh, amusement park in some way. So, so is that where Western magic started then? Does it, does it, does your, does it parallel the creation of the pyramid in some way or? Well, the sort of, the thesis of the book is that a lot of the kind of stories that inform Western spirituality in general, like the flood and and the kind of fight between two brothers and all that kind of stuff that appears in the Bible and thus sort of appears in our culture, uh, is significantly older. And I rely on the research of um, a Harvard Indologist by the name of Dr. Witzel uh, for a lot of that information. And he's he wrote this amazing book, The Origins of the World's Mythologies. And it's the kind of book you can only write at the end of your career. Like mm-hmm. He's quite old now. Uh, and he spent, you know, 50, maybe more years looking at the myths of the world. And there's th- that kind of peer pressure that you get in academia that you're not allowed to say things connect to other things. Because we tried that a, a, about 100 years ago, and it got quite racist quite <laughs> quickly. Uh, and that was sort of its design. Uh, so we sort of decided, okay, now everyone invented everything independently. Let's all play nicely. So we sort of threw some babies out with the bathwater because some things are similar to other things, and we can say that without being racist, hopefully. Uh, and so you kind of have a shape to the Western esoteric tradition that goes back to the Paleolithic. But interestingly, some of the spirits in the grimoires uh, have been very confidently traced by another writer called Jake Stratton Kent back to the sort of late classical era, uh, Alexandria, and and on one side, Greece, going back to the archaic period where it was, uh, you kind of have a necromantic tradition of that was probably exclusively female that dealt with the spirits of the dead and the restless dead. Uh, but Greece itself inherited that back. So my, the reason, the kind of trigger for writing this book from a magical perspective was... Uh, the last 10 years, magical discourse has gotten quite good at kind of getting its history right to a point. And that point was late classical Alexandria on one side and then kind of archaic Greece on the other. But in both cases, especially when I've been thinking in longer timelines for 20 years, in both cases, it's just not old enough for me. It's, you know, it's not even a thousand BC. Like it's, yeah, well, it's yeah. a bit more than that. You go, that's, you know, the, what, what happened in the 69,000 other years in between Africa and archaic Greece? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that book is kind of the, is the story of me looking for that. And what was interesting is, is so many of the prominent spirits and practices and kind of ways of approaching the spirit world, um, we unquestionably got them from Alexandria and, and Greece and, and sort of up through the Dark Ages and, and folk magic. But it's the question of where Alexandria and okay, Greece got them from. Yeah, and yeah. you kind of plug them together and you go, hang on a minute, I can legitimately make the case that one of the grimoire, one of the more popular grimoire spirits, Astaroth, which is patently uh, Astarte, which is one of the female names of God, um, that obviously becomes a demon when all that kind of stuff. Everyone knows that kind of story. But if you trace Astarte back to Inanna, which is fairly common, so you, you get back to Samaria very quickly. So there's a spirit in books that are being sort of sold in Paris in the in the 1780s that have. Um, a spirit in them that is actually the Sumerian goddess Inanna. Hmm. Fine. Where did Inanna come from? Yeah. And that's my book. And you go, well, hang on. You can actually match that uh, and and suddenly realize that the journey to, say, um, the Grimoire Umberum 
uh, or even later grimoires isn't a 1,800-year-old journey, it's a 30,000-year-old journey. And that necessarily, I think, changes the context in which uh, magicians today approach working with grimoire spirits because all of a sudden we kind of have a much... They, they have a bigger family tree than we expected. Hmm. Wow. Um, can you go into that a little bit a bit, a, a bit deeper and, and working with that? As in, well, hang on, which bit? The, how, how it changes how you would work with magic, knowing that the family tree goes back another, you know, thousands and thousands of years. Well, I don't think it changes anything on a... Um, functional way? Yeah, not on a functional basis. It just, uh, it, you just approach them differently. There's a fascinating thing, talking to uh, my publishers about this when we were talking about the book, where in the practice of magic, particularly if it's spirit magic stuff, and I've, you know, I have grown up in in areas that have been involved with this kind of thing, where it, it it does feel old because it is old, like you know, Aboriginal Australia and so on. Uh, even if you're doing something that's quite contemporary, that you can actually sort of pinpoint its origin in like the 80s or, or 1910, it feels very old when you do it. So there's a difference in the kind of mouthfeel of, of the practice of magic and and what you know of its history. And that was, if anything, that was the question mark that I needed to turn into, I don't know, an exclamation uh, by writing the book because it you, you start to realize <coughs> which kind of like boundaries between traditions can be blurred and which ones can't. Uh, you can take things back to classical Greece and that gives you a certain kind of set of protocols for dealing with the spirits of the dead. However, when you work out that those protocols came from Eurasia 10, 12,000 years ago, and it was those same Eurasian cultures that ended up becoming Vedic culture and uh, and Hinduism on one side, and, you know, you, you, you kind of go from the middle of Eurasia down and uh, in each direction to get different things, you start to realize that there are contexts to do with either meditation or drumming or chanting that aren't in the grimoires, but were there for a goodly portion of the Astaroth story. She wouldn't have been called Astaroth 12,000 years ago, but nevertheless, someone would have called that spirit in that way, which clearly isn't in the grimoires, because in the grimoires you sort of dress up like Moses and bully people around. Uh, it's... It's not a very practical system for the 21st century, uh, and and potentially that's one of the reasons for for looking elsewhere. Mm. Can you talk a bit more about your your personal spiritual practice? Um, not really. No. <laughs> <laughs> what about what about just the sigil magic in general? Oh sure. Uh, well, that that ended up being the kind of uh, the the breakout first album on the blog. Um, <laughs> I think it's been, yeah, it's been read a couple of million times now. Uh, but essentially, uh, sigil magic is this, well, in theory, sigil magic goes back to this sort of 250,000-year-old first instance of humans in Southern Africa where you, you're kind of seeing um, just little lines painted in red ochre on rock or bone or, or sequences of carvings in bone because that's what's called symbolic thinking. It's the first evidence we have of humans... Mm. Um, having something represent something else. 
and that's that kind of great act of magic. Um, the first piece of magic is is to realize that your consciousness is involved in in making meaning in in the world. So sigil magic, as pr- commonly practiced by chaos magicians, is by and large the kind of development of a London-based artist in the early 20th century called Austin Nusman Spare. Uh, and you've sort of, most people know about it, but you kind of write out your intent and you you cross out vowels and multiple letters and, and you turn that into um, something that looks, and I quote, magic-y. Uh, <laughs> mine ended up looking quite sort of Pacific tribal kind of thing. Uh-huh. It's a visual style. You get used to, like, there's literally no wrong way to do it. I know yeah. everyone thinks there is and and they found it but there genuinely isn't uh, and kind of the innovation that i humbly may say i contributed to the discourse was what i'm calling shoaling which is kind of using them in uh sort of activating multiple sigils at once with a sigil for something that has either already happened or is going to happen so if you know you're having spaghetti for dinner um you write spaghetti for dinner as a sigil and you put it in there with all the other stuff you actually want. Uh, And you have five or six of them. And it's called a robofish and it's sort of based on the idea. um, There was some tests done with robot stickleback fish. I think it was the University of Manchester. And uh, you put the robot fish in amongst the school of sticklebacks and they didn't do anything. And you sort of moved it slowly and they didn't do anything. But if it made decisive movements, the fish would school around it and follow it left and right and so on. And it was just sort of following. Because so, the assumption is the fish goes, oh, that guy knows something. Uh, and it's either danger or food and they follow it. And I kind of use that as the metaphor because I was trying to solve on a magical basis um, a time problem with sigils. Uh, when you deal with spirit magic, you can kind of um, ask for something or, or not demand something, but you can enter into a, a spirit agreement where you say, I need this thing to happen by now. And if it does, you get this. It's a contract, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so if it doesn't happen, the other side doesn't get their thing. There's none of that in sigil magic because it's, I mean, humans are technically spirits themselves, but you're kind of dealing with your own consciousness and unconscious. And it's a bit more, it's a bit more freeform and, and people think it's safer. It's not. Magic can still mess up your life. <laughs> right, right. So I was trying to shorten this kind of Amazon delivery time. Like, I'm like, why does it, I can't get anything to show up in less than two weeks. Uh, and so I'm like, okay, well, if I put one in there that is time-based for this evening, uh, maybe that'll do it. And it didn't. Uh, the The time thing seems to be out of your control because it's magic is probability enhancement. So um, it kind of depends on the rest of the universe and what you do to have those probabilities kind of eventuate. But what it did do is improve the success rate. And I think it's, I mean, this is such dumb science, quote unquote, but it's magic, so it doesn't need to be. But I think there's something about sending those messages, like letters to Santa, to your unconscious. Um, If you send one in for something that has happened or is going to happen, it kind of means your unconscious can put it in the correct pile. It's like, oh, these are things that happen. So um, Mm. spaghetti for dinner goes in with, well, not necessarily winning the lottery, but getting the promotion and and, and what have you. So it it gets all these messages in its pneumatic tube. uh, And one of them, and that seems to be it, like it it kind of anchors the intentions to physical reality. And and no one had really done that. And... uh, 
And I'm yeah. If if you just Google sigil magic rune soup, anyone who's listening, you'll get the whole thing. And yeah, that shit works. Yeah, it started know how- working better. It started working better. The- yeah, 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 much better. It's it's almost like uh, you know that sort of new agey thing about you know intention and the law of attraction. Like like act as if you've already got it, kind of thing. Like it, that it's not you know you're not asking for it or begging for it, but you're moving into yeah. a vibration of it's already there. Um, the act as if you've already got it. I mean Crowley wrote about that, uh, particularly to do with wealth magic. That is a lot more... That's actually a lot more challenging and a lot more sophisticated in terms of magic than it sounds, just because you have um, people on Oprah talking about it, uh, that, which is why it doesn't work for most people, because that's that's like an A-game thing. And I wasn't there. <laughs> I wasn't there. I was, you know, I was C-grade, C-grade at best. Uh, so you're right. It is like that, but... Um, a kind of shoaling method with the sort of robofish sigil works better because the, uh, potentially the trouble with acting as if you've already got something, it still keeps the intention at, at front of mind in, in consciousness where you're kind of aware that you don't have it. Um, Austin Spare's idea, I mean, we, we've kind of moved on with our sort of models of consciousness, but in the early 20th century, he was he thought that the unconscious was where everything manifested mm. in your life. Mm-hmm. So, and the conscious mind was the kind of, you know, bus driver, and it didn't manifest anything. Uh, it didn't, and, and that's also why, I mean, because he was an artist, so he was aware that uh, in that kind of early psychotherapy sense that you had to kind of deal with your shadows as well, because otherwise they'll manifest in your life as as challenges. And in funnily, funnily enough, that's now considered more or less science, even though, it's it's a guess, but this is the same idea, which yeah. is if you are if you are job seeking and you um try to just act as if you already have a job, that's quite difficult to do because your conscious mind is aware of the lack. Uh your conscious mind is aware that the reason you're acting this way is because you don't have it. Yeah. The kind of the theory is the unconscious mind doesn't know the goddamn difference. So it just it gets in its pneumatic tube. Um, you have a job as as a sigil message, and they go, oh, fair enough. That's that's what happens, and it's kind of like, um, I don't know, like the bathhouse and spirited away, and it just kind of pulls on things and, and manifests in the universe. Uh, and that so uh, sigil magic is quite fun in that way because it is comparatively benign as long as you don't use it for. I don't have a problem with like Malefica or cursing or anything. I don't really have cause to do it. I haven't used it in 20 years. But uh, for the love of God, don't use sigil magic for cursing because you're essentially sending really nasty messages into your own unconscious, which is sort of like swallowing the bomb, like it's dumb. Um, So it's actually quite a good thing for people to play around with because you sort of you pick benign and sometimes fun things. Like, cause it's actually quite difficult to think of six things you want at the one time. So you end up with like, always get a seat on a bus or, um, I want to see more celebrities just in day to day life, just, you know, useless stuff. Uh, and it, I mean, this is something when Grant Morrison sort of started playing with it in the nineties, he said, this is actually quite fun. Like I want to see more attractive women in red tops. And that was a sigil and it worked like it's, it's frivolous, but it's, it's, it's frivolous in a, in a good way because it, it makes your universe bigger. Each time you do it, you start to realize, well, there's something about me that co-creates reality. And that's, that's a really nice thing to, to know rather than to think. I wanted to ask you about it because I heard somebody talking on a podcast about it. Um, geez, it must have been 
four or five years ago. And I was stuck in this, stuck in this situation, stuck in this rut. So I actually tried it. And, uh, that's kind of what propelled me on this path now. Like that actually set a whole series of events in place to, uh, change my life. So it was, it was quite, uh, quite powerful. I haven't really, you know, looked into it much since then, but, uh, it's nice to hear your take on it. Well, yeah, that's, you know, it's very pleasant to hear it. It's surprising just how many people have actually had po- positive magical experiences in their life. Uh, it, it can you, it can be something like, oh, yeah, well, my aunt came and visited me after she died uh, and, and I had this dream. What do you think of that? And I'm like, well, what do you think I think of that? I think your aunt came to visit you, yeah. <laughs> you after she died. <laughs> like, uh, I'm a magician. This is, you know, we're not on, this isn't some kind of Stephen Fry program. Uh, but it's surprising how many people, because it is a normal functioning of human consciousness, uh, We that's effectively what magic is. Magic is a culture-specific description of, how to describe this, a culture-specific description of natural human consciousness capabilities. So our psi effects like telepathy and, and so on. If you actually break down the different quote-unquote schools of magic around the world, they're basically the same operatively. If you could go to the Amazon and find a shaman, you can go and find a witch in some Emilia-Romagna village in Italy. It doesn't matter where you go, there's essentially a, a, a couple of things. It's sort of seeing the future, trafficking with spirits, uh, and basically getting rid of the evil eye. But in, in all these cases, they kind of match some of the things that Dr. Sheldrake has been looking at in a scientific sense, which is, um, will people recover faster from surgery if other people are praying for them, even if they're unaware that the prayers are happening? And obviously, you know, telepathy and and the rest of it. So, um, and I think it, when you talk about remote viewing, however that works would have been described as a spirit world or traveling in the spirit world. So we kind of have this the kind of X-Men powers underneath magic, there's really only three or four of them, and they manifest in like in myriad cultures in a different way. And how they manifest in the West, or have historically manifested, is via this kind of grimoire tradition, which scares people because many of them are just lists of demons. But the, like the demon word is a bit unfair, which is why I use spirit, because taking Astaroth as an example, she used to be the counterpart to the Christian God until, you know, he got a divorce. Uh, and before that um, was the preeminent goddess of like one of our earliest civilizations. So it's a bit unfair to call her a demon now because the politics have changed. Uh, and But that's that's it. So we have these lists of, of, of beings who've kind of been companions. But if you look at the kind of spells, quote unquote, in the grimoires, they're the same. They're like getting rid of the evil eye, cursing someone who stole your pig, uh, you know, they're more or less the same kind of questions or conditions that someone would consult an Amazonian shaman for. That suggests to me very strongly that there is a deep structure to it, and kind of, and starships is is my examination of of how that deep structure um, formed into the recognizable shape that we see it today. Do you uh, do you do you not practice any magic that you can do curses? Oh sure, I just uh, would you I'm consider notified to me? Would you consider cursing Graham for me, just to like <laughs> as an experiment? No, no. Oh. He seems nice. He, he meanwhile he's muted me. Thanks, Taryn. Well, you were you were fiddling with your mic stand. <laughs> oh, was it? No, we can we can talk. 
with the show. Yeah, no, there's no no cursing here, Darren. Just for yeah. scientific no. purposes. No. <laughs> See what it puts me... Just because I like to experiment with, you know, the stuff that the guests talk about, that doesn't mean that I'm willing to, to do take a curse. But you're the one with magical experience. If you guys get into, like, a wizard fight, think about it. One of you's got experience, the other one doesn't. <laughs> That's it, but I got mushrooms. <laughs> <laughs> What uh, what do you think about uh, the idea or the, the theories of like simulated digital universes and stuff like that? Does does your world outlook kind of allow for that sort of thing? Uh, my world surprisingly uh, surprisingly open to anything. Like I, I, uh, there's something about chaos magic in particular that makes you wildly unattached to any particular belief. If uh, if you wake up one day and it turns out, oh, it turns out that's wrong, or oh, that's how that works, and it's not um, magic or it's not spirits, or if in the extremely unlikely situation that materialism is correct and, and some of these silly nonsense ideas about how telepathy works turn out to be the case, and you go, mm, fair enough, on with my day. Um, I think... In the case of the of a simulated universe, uh, there's something to that. I think that's a modern description of a kind of very Gnostic awareness that, one, this isn't our long-term home, and two, something's up, something's not right about how <laughs> this is put together. Uh, on, on a mathematical basis, the we use the word... Computer programs for some very good reasons, like the, um, the the problems with the redshift at the sort of edge of the universe, and the fact that the Big Bang is probably completely wrong, invented by a priest rather than an actual scientist, incidentally. Uh, so people are kind of looking to model how the Big Bang might work in that kind of thought experiment way, which is, well, if it's a computer program, you don't need to render the entire background, just the bits that are in in high definition. It's just the bits that are in use. Uh, and that goes some way to explaining some of the weird shit you're seeing at the sort of edge of telescope view. There's something to that, but it doesn't necessarily be, need to be uh, a computer program. It could be, I mean, I don't know if you're familiar with the sort of idea of biocentrism, which is sort of like an idealist or consciousness-based view of the universe, except it's created by anything that's alive. So that, so, um, so, so a slug has a little universe and and so on. Which so you, we could actually be seeing the edge of that as an example. So that's kind of the same idea, but instead of the computer having to write the code to keep extending the universe, the farther we can look. It's actually not. The computer, it's actually reality itself manifesting because our consciousness is is viewing it. Yeah, well... It's like so the observer effect on some fucking grand scale. Ex exactly. Uh, I mean, the computer thing is, is a metaphor. The, the hologram thing is a thought experiment and quite a good one that looks at... Um, that looks like the Gnostic creation story. It's just that, you know, in um, the third and fourth centuries, they didn't have computers, so they didn't use that, that term. But the, the thought experiment is that we're an nth degree hologram is quite a good way of, of thinking about how creation works, or quite a useful way, if not accurate. And the nth degree hologram is that Event like so one day we build and we're sort of doing it in theory, although I have my suspicions. We build a virtual reality world that is much more interesting 
and and more detailed or as detailed as a physical one and we spend more and more time in there to the point that we build a virtual reality world in our virtual reality world because we've largely forgotten and also that's the piece that's missing in our virtual world is virtual worlds (laughs) so we build one there and so suddenly our virtual character is now playing in a virtual world and that recurs to the nth degree and that's kind of one of the uh, one of the more fun kind of bong-ripping thought experiments when you're thinking about how, how a holographic universe might work or or how it is that we exist in a particular way. Uh, you know, it's it's a good idea. It's a good thing to sort of think through. And that sort of broadly matches um, the, the Yaldabaoth story of creation and then forgetting that he created it. So, you know, um, you have... The sort of the supreme god, the actual good god, creates um, Sophia, and she sort of gives birth to this thing called the Aldebaoth, who creates the physical world, and kind of forgets that there are the things above him, and says that I shall have no other. Well, you shall have no other gods but me. So Yaldabaoth, you can tell who they were talking about. The Gnostics didn't much care for the Christians and the uh, and the non-Gnostic Jews at the time. It's obviously kind of like a cipher for Yahweh, and they even give him his words. But it's the same idea that you you build this thing and you forget that it's not actually. Uh, it's not the full story because the description is when he said this, he sinned against the entirety. So he was actually unaware that he was sinning. So the, the holographic model matches, it's it's not a new idea. The, the Gnostics were thinking like this. They were thinking, how did this, how does this work? How is it built? Uh, and, and kind of thinking through very, very similar ideas. They just didn't have holograms and, uh, computers to use as their metaphors, so they have these big, exciting, sort of Near Eastern gods and demons instead. Hmm. You mentioned uh, synchronicities on your website. Before we wrap this up, do you have any like personal ones that stand out for you that you want to tell us? We talk about them quite a bit here, and it's funny. Uh, how it's tough, like loads. You know, when, yeah. once you start getting, yeah, uh, I think synchronicities are. I think the word has some um, problems in the sense that it's essentially magic. Like people use the word synchronicity and consider themselves materialists, which is not correct. Like, okay, how did that work? So how, how did how did the um, how did I see a string of words that matched the sentence of the person I was thinking about when they called me in the car? Like you go, oh, a bit of a synchronicity. You go, well, no, you're fine. How does that work? And so I'm I'm very interested in them because I think um, the word has lost some of its utility because it's been over people sort of playing bingo with whatever Nicki Minaj is wearing uh, across the internet as some sort of sync thing, and it's um, it's destroying the usefulness that uh, Jung gave it. And and he he gave it a full blown wizardly interpretation. I mean, if you read the Red Book, he was a full blown wizard. There's no other way to describe Jung. Mm-hmm. So I'm, yeah, the, you, you get dozens of them and it's that kind of thing of the universe noticing you noticing it. The more you start to lean into it, uh, the more of them you see. And then so the more of them you see, they start to become a thing you can kind of navigate by. And if anyone's interested in kind of boosting their their sinks, then um, that's a very good thing to sort of start sigilizing for as, as a beginning thing, mm. increase in synchronicities, because they, they, the results manifest via synchronicity anyway. So you can kind of kick that up a notch 
by um, putting sigils together that say increase in synchronicities and and so on. That's a great idea. Yeah, good way to do it. So, so is there anything we've been on for a while here, Gordon? Is there anything you think we should? Uh, you want to talk about about your new book or anything else before we start wrapping it up? Uh, what did we? No, we covered the Ice Age. We covered Egypt. Uh, we kind of missed off the. Well, we spoke about NASA and Mars, but we kind of missed off the sort of spirit interpretation. But that's cool. Then we spoke about spirits. No, I think I'm good. I think right. we had a good old chat. <laughs> right on. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was a blast. It was great. And yeah, the we recommend... The time always seems to fly by. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Yeah, I recommend nice your book. We'll put the links in the show notes and all that. And uh, are you any plans to put on audio at all? Uh, it's a good question. I was actually just talking to the publishers about it. At the moment, no. But uh, probably the next one, I've got another book coming out in April, uh, that one may get to audio first, but that's a specific kind of like um, success magic strategies book. It's not a a history and mythology and sort of Egypt and alien book, which Starships is. Okay, cool. Well, uh, Nice one. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, and good luck with that book as well. Yeah, yeah. Let us know when it comes out and uh, we'll have you back. Seems like we could fill another two hours pretty quick. <laughs> Anytime. Always a pleasure. Right on. Thanks a lot, Gordon. Okay, see you. Okay, bye-bye. bye-bye. That was our chat with Gordon. That was a good one, eh? Fucking flew by. Yeah. The another, good ones always fly by. The fastest two hours of my life. Yeah, he could talk about all kinds of stuff. I was really excited about that after reading his book and listening to some interviews on it. He did this presentation in October that we didn't talk about, about the archaeology of dragons, and it was fascinating about how where dragons have come from in culture and, and the history and really cool stuff. Nice. Do you believe in dragons? I've slayed a few dragons in my day. <laughs> <laughs> okay, St. George. <laughs> Anyhow. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, you like it? Yeah, that's great stuff. You gonna practice some synchronicity sigil magic? Probably not. You should try. No, I don't like to dabble in the dark arts. It's yeah. not dark. No, it doesn't have to be. No, it inevitably turns out to be. No, it doesn't. If I learn magic, I'm gonna curse you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on, buddy! You can rake me, and I'll curse you. Anyway, big thanks to Gordon for coming on the show. I'm looking forward to maybe we can have him back again when his new book comes out for another couple hours. Yeah, check out runesoup.com. It's full of awesome blogs, really good stuff, all kinds of categories. I don't know how he does it, puts it all together. Yeah, he's funny. He's got a good sense of humor. Yeah. Perfect. Um, all right, guys, check out grammarica.ca slash support, as always, for all the different ways to help out the show, uh, one-time donations, monthly subscriptions stories spam um we've got the t-shirts there for donations of 25 dollars or more we've got the magnets in now i think we're going to do those for donations of five dollars or more or new subscribers probably if you're an old subscriber and you want one we could probably work something out we'll figure it out we're we're new at this everything everything we do is the first time we've ever done it so (laughs) pretty much eh? there's always some fucking speed bumps but check that out. Yeah, anything else? Sign up for the newsletter, grammarica.ca slash news. Review the show wherever you can. Share the show wherever you can. Tell your friends about this motherfucker. You could do that easily with a magnet on your bumper. Spam gram. Spam. Did you say that already? G-R-A-H-A-M at grammarica.com. Dot com. Or C-A. I think C-A yeah. forward. 
Yeah, we like hearing from you. And uh, if, if you don't hear back, I'm sorry about that. But we do try and respond to everybody. And, um, they help us fill the interest. Stories and stories, experiences, trip reports, synchronicities, UFO sightings, all that stuff. If you are listening to this on some other format, because it seems like there's probably people listening where we don't know, just remember you can always find everything for America at the website, crimeamerica.ca. Yeah, and there's lots of links in the show notes for all Tons that stuff. Tons of great bloggers. Check out some of the bloggers there. We've got a, a load of good bloggers now. Um, sign up for or shoot me an email if you want to be a blogger. And uh, yeah, that's about it. Thanks for listening, guys. Right on, buddy. We will see you next week.
like coast to coast, but on demand, raw and uncut interviews, and all without no ads, one says false and one says true, and the rage of sin grows too, America, America is here for you, stories from the listeners, they sent to Graham, he'll read the man, be amazed, but Darren says red and one says blue but if it's balls it just won't do 